Hey, it's Tia Carrer, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Speaking of, speaking of uh, speaking of things that are obviously unpleasant, um, <clears throat> I I was when we were at the nursery earlier on, just before you arrived, uh, there's a woman turned up and she was like sort of quite, I would describe her as severely pretty, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, she, yeah, she she turned up and she pressed the buzzer, and she said, "Oh, I'm here to pick up Melania," and. And then a few seconds later, this like little, I'd see she was like between four and five, this little girl came out. And I thought, that is a bold move, calling your daughter the name of the wife of one of the worst human beings in like recent memory. And I was thinking, I was doing, I was doing the math. And I thought, yeah, because so say she's five. That would have been five years ago, 2018, smack bang in the middle of his presidency. So she must have been sitting on the couch, rubbing her swollen belly. And the husband's rubbed it and said, I've I've thought of a name for her, Donald. (laughs) And then she said, oh, well, what about Melania? And he was like, oh, go on then. Uh, Probably be more, probably Probably, make more sense. Probably make more sense now that I think about it. Jeez, that's, yeah. When I was there looking at it, I was thinking, I can't think of any other famous Melania. So that must be. No, really, no. In honour of, yeah. Was she, uh, I, I don't know, like Eastern European or something? I don't know where that name's from. No, and, and no, she, no, the woman was, well, she was very, very, she was like sunbed tanned. Um, and she'd also had, you know when well, they have like. from my a, stick then. Is it, is it collagen they've injected into the lips? Oh, right, yeah. Um, so she, no, it's the other one. What's the other one? I can't remember. It's like, lip, I know what you mean, lip filler stuff, but yeah. She, she, she looked ridiculous. She was obviously pretty, oh. but had just gone too far. Just with ruined it. her face, right? Okay. Yeah. She'd um, she'd gone to Alan Carr. She's she'd had some. She, what what was it we say? She's, she's had, had some Michael Burke. <laughs> she she's had some Michael Clive. Yeah, Michael Burke Clive done. Um, but out there. So, <clears throat> but yeah. Aside from that, we've got this. It's a nice episode today, actually, because uh, I know you've watched you've watched at least one and a half films. Um. I've watched yeah, one film. I've genuinely watched one of the films I'm going to talk about 23 times in the last two weeks. And I, I think I know who might have had an influence <laughs> over that decision. <laughs> um, and yeah, we've got a guest review. Uh, Rich, the editor from Game 3, has, has given us, sent us an audio Super Mario Brothers movie review. Oh, nice, nice. Um, and or there's an Arkansas and, and I'll say this I know we, we do the Arkansas at the end of the show now but um I do you remember ages ago we did like a an ultimate uber turbo Arkansas where uh someone I think Ben Ben did it in yes. the end weirdly quickly where it was getting through all the cast the main cast of friends and linking yeah, them through movies. that was impressive I was thinking of one the other day and, and I, I thought we haven't done one of those in a while so I'm just going to throw it out into the ether um of the cast of Frasier, but just the male cast because they are the ones that have been the most films. So if okay. we can do like an Arkansas, well, I'll keep it open for a few weeks while people have a think of, so you've got to get from Kelsey Grammer to David Hyde Pierce to John Mahoney. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think John Mahoney's going to be the trouble because I, I know he's, he's played, ju- he's played like judges in, yeah. um, 
in some films I've seen him in, he always plays like an authority figure. David Hyde Pierce obviously was in Hellboy, which is a big, a big link. And yeah. Kelsey Grammer was in uh, <laughs> a Periscope. So with Rob Schneider. So I think John Mahoney, if I can think of, he's definitely been, he's he's been generals and stuff, hasn't he? He's that kind of character. He's always in like the war room or whatever in some shitty like uh, disaster movie or other. But yeah, it's, it's doable. Uh, in the war room or, or as his wife refers to it the toilet um i'm going to war he's got a magazine, <laughs> magazine under his arm and it's a spare toilet roll in his pocket uh, <laughs> um yeah, yeah i could take my war plans with me copy of the daily star yeah I, one of our one of our listeners actually i'm not, I'm not going to embarrass them by, by saying who it is but um uh, was once on the toilet and he was <laughs> and i don't think this has ever happened to anyone else he was on the toilet and he was wiping his bum and he kind of somehow got off balance and like fell off the toilet and landed on the floor <laughs> and shouted like ah because he landed on his shoulder and his head and his wife burst in to see if he was okay and of course he was there like with his back, just shout looking away from on the floor as he tried to get up but shouting get out get out get out, get out don't look at me That's uh. what you want. That's like that's, the ultimate. Yeah. That's when you're yeah. the most vulnerable. Yeah. That's a new core memory for her, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Brilliant. Mm. So, yes. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was my idea for the, the ultimate turbo, uber, mega, ultra, Arkansas, the Fraser cast. Um, and Is yes. This Kino Kingdom 71. Yes. Good. I'm glad yeah, I'm keeping I keep track. I probably should have mentioned that. Yeah, welcome to Kino Kingdom 71, everyone. Um, yeah, so uh, how do you want to, because there's actually, I, I know we tend to start off doing the films that we've both seen together, and there's there's two films we've both seen together this time, there's, there's Mr. X and Warhead. Yes, Warhead, yes, Mr. X, I was pretty much unconscious of the whole thing, although I will say about Mr. X, Mr. X is Godfrey Ho, right? Yes, I've actually covered it before on the podcast last year, so yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't very good, but... Well, they, no. The, the, my overriding memory of it was a scene in which a guy bursts in on a woman having sex and the the sound effects of the woman screaming uh, he had stolen from the scene in Die Hard where the terrorist burst in on the woman who's got her boobs out in the office and she screams as she's dragged out. So he stole sound effects from Die Hard. I'd say that's a minor crime in the Godfrey Ho um canon but you know yeah i mean he's literally taken music from star trek and stuff just, <laughs> yes. just put it in the film <laughs> yeah literally put it from other films yeah. <laughs> yeah this is the um this is the one with the mr x i mean long long-term listeners will remember i talked about this it's joe lewis is the main guy who is like a fixer and um it's like a, it's about like a war between the yakuza and the triads but it's funny because every time it cuts to joe lewis he's clearly just it's a different aspect ratio it's on it's on like digital not on analog film and and he's that scene that i think you may remember if i jog in memory where about halfway through where he just sits with someone who's hired him for the job and they just sit there and just explain yep. the plot while literally holding scripts yeah it's yeah. astonishing and the framing in that is amazing and it's not just down to the aspect ratio either, the framing, the fact that sometimes someone's head will be half cut off because there's no way there's any aspect ratio that could ever capture what he's what he should be capturing, if you see what I mean. It's just mm. it's just terrible framing. Yeah, and there's moments when there's he's 
talking to him. So he's explaining the plot and just going through lists of names as as is Godfrey Ho's uh, <laughs> yeah. style. But he'll be sitting there and literally just like looking down at his notes as he's reading them out. And it's deeply racist, that scene as well. Yeah, doesn't he just say, he points at just someone on TV who's like a newscaster, like an Asian newscaster. Yeah. And, and he's just, what does he say? He just, he, he says, him, oh yeah, and, and, and shoot him as well. I don't like the look of him. I and think he, he uses, he might use the phrase gook or something like that. He calls him slanty eyed and it's like, wow, this is just, this is casual. This is, it's so ca- It's also, I'll be talking about casual racism later on as well. As I read aloud pages from my father's diary, no, <laughs> just from another thing, and, and from an, un, an unseen angle, I came across some racism this last week, and I thought, oh, cra- craggy. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, yeah, Mr. X is it's on it's on Amazon Prime, I think, and uh, it's absolutely worth a good Am I right in saying that Amazon Prime has a a, a few Godfrey Hope films on it, a handful? Yeah. yeah, yeah, not a plethora, perhaps, but a handful. Yeah. More than you can fit in a biscuit tin. Um, and I suspect yeah. it probably has, its algorithm would probably guide you towards directors of similar <laughs> calibre, dare I say. There's no, <laughs> there's no one, one really in there. No one else. in the Yeah, calibre. That would be a hell of a day, that would. But yeah, Mr. X is, is one of my favourite Godfrey Hall films because it's so brazen. I think that scene as well, the racist scene where they're just, they're just reading off scripts, when he passes him the paper, he does it round the camera, if you remember. He kind of passes it like around the camera that's clearly there. So yeah, because he's sitting next to someone. Because it's a shot of the guy, the hero, and and the other guy's off screen, and he's meant to hand something, sort of like enter the frame with his arm to hand him something. But for some reason, it's like the camera's in the way, so you see his arm like arch around the camera. It's astonishing, really. These are details that probably should have been picked up. <laughs> when you. When you watch as many Godfrey Hull films as I have, nothing is astonishing anymore. But it, it, is like, it, it is amazing watching Godfrey Hull film because it's almost like it's so bad to the point of it, you always think, is this deliberate? You know, like when you watch The Room, um, which was a famously appalling film, um, mm. and you're watching The Room and you're thinking it, it's almost like a parody. It's almost like it's so hilariously bad that it's like, he must be doing it deliberately. He must be in on it somehow, but but then he realizes he's not, and that's what makes it more. That's what makes a genuinely bad film enjoyable because it's not trying to be bad. It's unintentionally bad, and that is brilliant. Yeah. I still haven't seen the room, by the way. I don't don't know why. You should see. You should see. It. It's, it's very very poor, <laughs> but and also ah. baffling. Uh, yeah, on many levels, but. Oh, just so many things about that. I just, it was the unnecessary green screen, I think, that stood out for me. I mean, apart from the, the main, I can't remember his name, but obviously the main guy who directed it, wrote it, starred in it. He's everything. And there's all oh, that. Yeah. His performance is just wild. But on top of that, just bizarre scene, bizarre, like rooftop scenes with all this terrible green screen tommy what tommy tommy wiseau tommy wiseau that's it yeah yes and of course there was then that um the james franco film wasn't there which told the story of it i'll have to watch them both that'll probably be a good double bill wouldn't it i think so yeah watch the room and then watch that is it james franco or dave franco that sounds like they spit when they talk i think it could be both of them Uh, dave i think 
yeah, he's, he, you can imagine him spitting on fellow actors when he talks. Yeah, I bet, but Dave Franco is like mostly mouth, so it makes sense. <laughs> mostly mouth, and his brother's the madness. Um, yeah, so that was that was Mr. X, and the other one we watched was was Warhead from 1996, not that one. And this was the one where, aside from Frank Zagarino, everyone kept on thinking the main bad guy was Jared Leto. Mm. Yes, this is <laughs> the one where where well it, it starts off with an operation to like take down some what are they drug dealers or something yeah and it, there's a spotter guy isn't there in the oh bushes and he's God. the most annoying character i think i've ever seen in a film but <laughs> spoiler alert he gets killed really early on and I'm so, so early he's awful and, and he's even got like irritating facial hair because if you remember it's one of those things where it's like starts off thick at the nostrils and then tapers off to points down either side Ooh. and he looks a little bit like um, Giovanni Ribisi but a bit more ratty wow that yeah, is pretty so. ratty <laughs> yeah. um, and also Warhead is the scene where um, uh, it's just a film where the stuntmen look like they really hurt themselves yeah uh, and what like the scene where they kind of jump out of the dam is that right they get washed Ooh. through a dam and it's like genuinely stuntmen getting washed through this really powerful dam and, and like getting thrown about slammed up against like, a concrete wall yeah they're just dead, dead. <laughs> just see them float off dead um <laughs> yeah. and also with that with this as well a couple of other things that pop up is is I remember the, the stunt work is actually really wonderfully over the top. If every yeah. time someone throws a grenade, people are just thrown like yeah. 70 feet around through buildings and streets. But also, and thrown in quite random directions as well. That's that's pretty cool. Like, they're, they're not just like running away and just getting lifted into the air. They'll be like blasted and like spin around in the air. It's pretty cool. I do like a good physical stunt. That's why yeah. the Maniac Cop sequels are actually watchable. Especially, is it the th- is that the third one or the second one where Robert Darby is just acting like he's in a film noir and not a trashy horror? I think it's the, the second, second one. It's, it's so amazing because they still had a bit of budget then, didn't they? It could be it could be worth yeah just throwing out to the listeners to, if there's a film that you you know of that you watch it and and it's like they're in a different film. It's like they've been told it's a different genre because in <laughs> yeah. Maniac Cop two it is astonishing the way that it literally be you know the Maniac Cop like sort of thumbing someone's eyes out and blood squirting everywhere and then rah and then music going rah 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 and then it'll mm-hmm. cut it'll cut to just Robert Darby and it'll be yeah. And he's suddenly like Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> and he's, uh, I don't know what the broad was doing in my office. And you know what? That's a different film. What's happening? It's just, this is a film noir from the 40s. What, are you, what, what? is going on? And why, why are you, you sitting on the chair like that? Why are you sat in the chair that way? Who helped you up to that chair before the scene started? <laughs> um, yeah, so Warhead is a classic. Uh, it, it's genuinely like, it's it's a very entertainingly bad uh, action. It is entertaining because it's pretty non-stop as well. Yeah, like it's not, it's one it's of those like, movies where it's like so fast paced for the first like forty five minutes that when it gets to a point where there's like eight minutes of <laughs> exposition or whatever, you're like, oh, it's just slowed down a bit, but then it just kicks off again. Oh my god, Mark Roper, mm-hmm. who directed Warhead, directed Don't Breathe. Did he really? Holy wow. shit. Well, and killing and killing uh, killing season that awful film with John Travolta and um, yes. Robert De Niro. Oh, that wasn't very good. Oh. So is it don't, is it Don't Breathe that one? It's oh no, hang on. What? Hang on. Yeah, with Stephen Lang. I'm on IMDb and it says Mark Roper, mm-hmm. director known for Don't Breathe. And you click on Don't Breathe, 
And it says it's directed by Fede Alvarez. Oh, maybe he, he's probably a different. Uh, yes, yeah, it, it's probably a different part of the crew, isn't he? He probably worked as like assistant director or something. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Then, yeah. then I was I was oddly excited then. Okay, so um, oh, he's a producer on Don't Breathe. In fact, uh, that was Mister X, Mister X and Warhead. Um, what are we? What, what are we thinking of? Do you want to? Do you want to smash into one of yours? Uh, yeah, I might as well cover before I get into my theme uh, of today. I might as well cover Shazam: Fury of the Gods. Okay. Because uh, you kindly <laughs> granted me a a preview screening of this. Although, of course, kindly supplied by Warner Brothers. Thank you, Warner Brothers. Although, actually, it's available. Well quite famously available like three weeks after a cinema release for streaming, uh, okay. which said it all about its uh, box office uh, take. It did very, very poorly, this film. Um, did the original do very well? Yeah, but the original did pretty well, I think. Okay. Uh, well enough for a sequel, clearly. But yes, anyway, so this is... <clears throat> and I, I have you seen the original? No, no, no. I, um, I, I do get... Well, when they said Shazam was coming out originally, yeah. I mean, when it was about four or five years ago, I remember thinking, oh, and I clearly just mixed it up in my head with like the Black Adam character because they both got like lightning bolts on their chest. And then right. then Black Adam came out. and I was like, all right. And then I kind of understood the difference. But no, I've never, never seen Shazam. Yeah. So the, the kind of concept behind Shazam is he's a boy, like a teenage boy. But when he says he got like an, he's got an alliterative name, hasn't he? Billy something. Batson or something. Billy, Billy Batson. Batson. That's it, yeah. Yeah, so um not Billy Blanks. Um so he <laughs> is yes, a teenage uh, and and when it basically when he's he gets bestowed with these powers and when he says Shazam, he turns into an adult played by Zachary Levi, uh, you know, with the full superhero um so you're no, gonna say with a full beard Zachary Quinto with a full beard. Oh well okay. <laughs> I think I would have preferred that. But yeah, I'm yeah, so and he's basically got Superman type powers. I suppose his the problem is is that he's still basically a kid, so his judgment is quite poor. Um uh, I was instantly it, bored then when you said Superman like powers, it's instantly overpowered and therefore boring. Well he is quite overpowered, but as I say, he's kind of like because he's still a kid, it's essentially like a, you know, like an '80s body swap type comedy mixed with a superhero film, really big for the big for the 2020s. Um, so in this one, I can't really remember what happened in the first one to be honest, but it's obviously an origin thing. So in this one, uh, you've got these three gods played by Helen Mirren, Lucy Liu, and Rachel Ziegler, um, most recently of West Side Story fame, and they come along and they steal this magic staff and they get it powered up and they. This is Shazam's fault, by the way. He uh, he opened a gateway between realms, so these gods are coming from another dimension. Anyway, their their ostensible motivation is to take this staff and use it to rebuild their own world, but then they decide to destroy Earth because humanity is inherently evil or something. So it's nothing new, really, with the motivation. Well, it sounds like a mass generalization from like a few minutes of coming <laughs> through it? a portal. It really does. Um, so Shazam and his family, this. So basically, it's it's Shazam himself and a bunch of kids, uh, uh, like brothers and sisters, basically, who turn into superheroes, but all turn into superheroes by saying Shazam. So they're busy protecting the streets of Philadelphia, um, but in their meantime, like going to school and stuff. And there's some 
pretty generic high school drama comedy stuff here. There's lots of it's like bullying, romance, hanging out, and of course, ironically, listening to incongruous old music like in Guardians of the Galaxy. And it all feels a bit slack and aimless. It's a bit more like a TV series, I'd say. The, the first 40 minutes, honestly, it the stakes are barely established. Um, once the stakes are established, then it just becomes like weightless city scale CGI for the second half of the movie, basically, um, as these gods try and smash everything up. And these kids have to defeat them. So Zachary Levi is is Shazam and he does try hard and that's kind of part of his character because his character he he's a kid who's desperate to be liked and taken seriously but the problem is we've had two movies of this now and the, and the joke is wearing a little bit thin it's like it's like you wouldn't really want a big sequel would you uh let alone a vice versa sequel with uh <laughs> judge reinhold um <laughs> but not only that but the joke uh, of basically kids uh, adults acting like kids it's effectively multiplied across a bunch of different adults pretending to be kids if you see what i mean and it doesn't help that they're all basically indistinguishable they're all a bit cutesy sarcastic gormless and quirky really and that style of humor is just it's just one note it's like so a huge catastrophic event will occur right and then there'll be the initial shock and then, of course, there's the moment when the tension is punctured by some so-called funny, sarcastic comment. And then the characters move on, uh, like completely unaffected by the event. Um, for example, there's like a, a scene where a house, the house is destroyed by this dragon and the parents just kind of take it in their stride with a throw, throwaway line. And the problem with that is, is that if no one's taking anything seriously and, it, and everything's just a punchline, it it leaves us with a sense that everyone in the movie is aware they're in a movie. So it, there are no stakes because it's like everyone's constantly making jokes out of stuff, not taking anything seriously. Uh, so, yeah, um, there's a lot of the characters are annoying. There's this, um, there's this girl played by Grace Caroline Curry, who was the girl in, in fall, which I think I reviewed a few weeks ago. Um, and she was okay in that, but she's just utterly wooden here. Uh, and there's one of the kids who's kidnapped by the witches. He is intensely sarcastic and annoying. He's played by Jack Dylan Grazer, one of the kids from the It films. Um, yeah, there's not really much funny here because everyone in it is so irritating and um, and sarcastic. So... There's one vaguely amusing sequence where they like tame an angry unicorn by feeding it a handful of skittles. I found that quite funny. Um, let me think. Any other positives? There was a nice, there's quite a nice visual where they go and visit this huge cavernous library which has living books which flap around like bats. I quite like that bit. It's a nice little visual. But most of the movie so has that. The Sorry. Those two things, then those two things, like a unicorn eating sweets, yeah. and some, and looking at some bats, which you could have done in the. the yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm is it worth the hundred and twenty-five million dollars? <laughs> That's what I'm getting. No, at. or indeed the two and a, two hours twenty minute runtime. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but most of the movie has that really overbright, like unlived in plasticky green screen appearance that just looks really cheap. And it's the same city destruction crap we've seen a thousand times before. Like the final sequence, which is where these mythic hordes rampage through the city, it's just Avengers again. You know, it goes on for like a full hour. It's completely stultifying. And yes, they destroy something bigger than a shed, so you don't need to watch this. Um, I'm just, I was just yeah. looking down through this, and I'm just looking at, um, oh yeah, I see they called them the Shazamily. Um, I'm just, sorry, um, I'm just looking at the, the the description of the the plot on Wikipedia. And usually, when you you're talking about a film, I find something to sort of like an actor who's in it that's you know yeah. nice to chat about. But I'm looking at this. And there's a bit where it says uh, spawns various monsters, including Cyclopes, which I didn't realize was the plural of Cyclops, but makes sense. Cyclops, Harpies, Manticores and Minotaurs. And I love big monsters. Do they look cool? Is that a cool scene? Uh, I mean, they look all right. They're kind of like cartoony-ish versions of those creatures. And of course, because it's so tame and everything has to have a punchline, there's no threat really from them. So because it's not that kind of movie. Hmm. so there's nothing kind of scary about them uh yeah it's just the word that i kept thinking of was just charmless it like it reeks of desperation to become like the dc version of guardians of the galaxy i would say but it fails like on pretty much every level it's just not funny and it's irreverence just nullifies any sense of threat I mean, at least Guardians of the Galaxy managed to find some balance between humour and pathos, but this just doesn't even bother. It, it, feel, it feels like there's some sort of worth to the Guardians of the Galaxy films. Like, you know, when I watch them, yes. I, there's, there's an enjoyment there. It is ironic that I, considering in my head, I mean, I, I never, Shazam or Black Adam, I, I genuinely mix up the characters in my head for years because uh-huh. I think about them so sort of infrequently. But it's funny that we've reviewed, um, I reviewed Black Adam and found uh-huh. it to, pretty much be a parallel to this where it's desperately trying to become a franchise yeah and it, it's it, it the the film brought in more characters and yeah it, whereas with with this like you say it's kind of charmless and the balance is off with when i was watching black adam it was like a lot of characters that did need to be in there making strange decisions and it felt like a it was okay. i i think i think about bright when i think about this emotion that i feel with it where where it's just you're watching a film trying to be so desperate to become a franchise it, it's yeah. like when you watch any video game youtube influencer on youtube and you can see in their eyes the desperation to be adored that is, it's it's <laughs> yeah. but that's just on a one-to-one basis this is obviously an entire cast and it makes yeah. me feel the same things i can feel the desperation as i watch it yeah and there's well there's nothing there's nothing more charmless nothing less charming than uh de- that kind of desperation i mean in people as well but in terms of like it's films, ended friendships for me let me tell you it just like it feels like a knockoff yeah i know what you mean about god is the galaxy like yeah some of the humor doesn't quite hit the mark but it does at least have some ideas and especially the second one which is pretty insane really so and you can't and charmless is not something you can level up no. with like um groot and stuff um yeah. and i think that the, both guardians of the galaxy or three however many there are are absolutely worth it for that one scene with dave batiste street and crisps so that's worth the 400 million that's been thrown on it as far as i'm yeah. concerned yeah i was wondering why it is that shazam this shazam has not 
done well. And I know that there are probably people who are thinking, you know, oh, it's the, you know, the time of the comic book blockbuster is over, which may be true. But I'm also thinking about like what the things, the kind of defining features that have made the mo- the recent most popular films successful. And you think about like, okay, Top Gun had this kind of grounded realism in inverted commas. And then you had like Super Mario Brothers had brevity. Uh, and then you got Avatar 2, which had, for all its flaws, it had sincere world building. OK, so and then you look at something like Shazam and it's got none of those things. It's got it hasn't got any. It's not grounded at all. It's overlong, turgid and also doesn't have any kind of. It, like the world building so lazy you know it's just like oh here's some gods for another dimension and some bullshit mythos that Helen Mirren might as well be reading off the a fag packet it's like yeah it's just lame and it deserved to fail <laughs> I actually was speaking of reeking and desperation of course Zachary Levi and his bloody you see his I don't know if they're TikTok oh, yes. videos or whatever. I, yeah. Oh my god, that was just sad. Like desperately trying to get people to watch this film, and it's like, no, this it mirrors the film itself. The desperation. Yeah. It's sad. Um, and yet I well, have no pity for it. <laughs> moving on from moving on from um, something that's two hours and twenty minutes long to something that's an hour and twenty five minutes long, I watched The Deep House. Uh, on which is on Amazon Prime, it's a primer, yeah. and I, I was in the mood for like a a trashy like sub ninety minute horror film. So this was actually selected by Faye, and I said let's just do it, let's just dive in, babe. Let's not look at any, mm-hmm. let's not look at any reviews. Let's just go hip steep. And um, so this uh, this is effectively a it's it's a horror. It, well, actually, I won't tell you who's in it. I'll tell you who's in it afterwards because this is a horror, and it sort of differentiates itself from everything. It's called the Deep House. And it's all pretty much 95% of it is filmed underwater during a scuba dive, uh, which I didn't realize when I put the film on. So the premise is there's a, there's a couple, a uh, young couple, and they are sort of traveling. He's a, he's a YouTuber. So he's got desperation in his eyes from the start. Um, no, he's, he's a YouTuber and he's trying to get the next sort of, you know, big hit. He's trying to, um, beat the algorithm and get millions of views and he goes to haunted places and tries to drum just up before traffic. you go on yeah. is this the solution to the found footage problem perhaps yeah oh, going, going underwater no no just streamers in general because the problem with found footage of course was there was often no reason for them to be filming <clears throat> stuff whereas streamers in their desperation will film anything for any amount of time it's true, actually. Yeah, just trying to find that that moment that'll like, yeah, exactly. get the millions of views. It's a good show, actually. Well, this kind of is works out as a fan footage film, and I will explain mm. why. Um, so yeah, they, they <clears throat> and they're in France, and they try to go somewhere where there's apparently um some haunted old sixties holiday spot or whatever, and it turns out to just be a massive tourist trap, and there's just loads of people there just getting pissed and smoking weed, and it's a massive disappointment for them. And there's a scene where the, the the male of the couple goes over to a, 
like a because they're in France, obviously the blazing hot summer's day, drinking wine, the the worst thing to drink on a hot day, red wine. Um, but he, he buys rosé, so I won't talk about that too long. But he comes back and he bumps into this old French bloke, and this old French bloke says to them, "Oh, look, I know where there's somewhere we can go, and you'll get the footage you want." Um, it's a sort of French village that was purposefully submerged to make way for a dam. So okay. he said, it's, if you go under there, it's uh, it's haunted the fucking back. And it's perfect, this perfectly preserved village from like the 60s. So they go there and they do this dive. And I didn't realize that. I, th- I was waiting for the film to kind of, you know, I thought they're going to do the dive for 10 minutes and the film would carry on. But the moment they get their gear on and go underwater, no, that's it. They're under <laughs> the whole film. And it was quite cool, actually. I've got to say, it's well filmed in that regard. Right, because of course I know I should maybe should have guessed because it's called the Deep House. But what I don't get is they're underground, they're underwater, and they were talking to each other. And he's got all this equipment, all this extremely expensive equipment. Bear in mind they're in their like mid twenties, mm. and they were talking like you and I are like really clearly. And I thought, yeah. how can they be? Yeah, because I thought it would be oh, oh it's cold, isn't it? <laughs> or whatever, whatever <laughs> scuba divers say to each other. Um, but but it like Darth Vader, but it wasn't. It was just it was just really clear, and and I thought that's odd. But I thought, well, if they're going to be underwater for an hour and twenty yeah, minutes, was really, it make sense that they can? We can I'll make these concessions. But what really tickled me uh, was at the start of this when they're going under and they're going through this village and there's like a petrol station and a church and stuff. I'll, I'll do the scuba thing because it's kind of more funny. And this ties into. Do you remember we were talking about the, your uh, Nissan Micra? Yes, uh, yes. Uh, and yet. And I, I didn't know you drove that car because I don't know anything about cars. And we stumbled across the Internet Movie Cars database, imcdb.com. Yeah. Um, and we found out that there was a Nissan Micra in Postmortem with Charles Sheen. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. I watched this film not long after we recorded that episode. And it really tickled me how it led off to to the um, <laughs> to like the cars being in films. And I find, find it quite amusing. And my dad, by the way, has got like addicted to just looking at that. that <laughs> seeing what cars are in what films which is brilliant. Um, I was watching this. And it's it's when they, I hope I do this justice. They're going, they die doing the initial dive, so they go underneath, and he and he's like, calm, calm down, breathe, you know, breathe. We've got like ninety six percent oxygen left, and it, and then he looks down and he sees a road, and he sort of squints at a car that's completely submerged and covered in like rust, and he says, is that a Rover P six? I swear to God, I laugh. <laughs> in, I th- if, in any film, I've never heard someone say, is that a Rover P6? Is that a, is that a Rover 800? You'll see many of those around. And he's English as well, so it works perfectly. Is that a Rover P6? And it really tickled me that they specified an old car brand. And I told my dad this story. And I said, oh, yeah. And then he says, oh, is that a Rover P6? And my dad said, hey, the Saint drove one of those in the 60s TV series. I thought, of course you knew that. Of course you knew that. Um, but, yeah, so that's a that, nice that, nod to the Saint then, isn't it? <laughs> well, it just tickled me the whole. But the but to moving on to the film and moving away from Rover P sixes, if if I can, um, the, the the it's it's a pretty standard horror. It just happens to be underwater, and I think I've seen some reviews of this where people were really taken by it. But right. I, I I think that it was a lot of I anything underwater inevitably gets on my nerves in video games. Yeah. I just you know it, there's something about water that it just it doesn't excite me as much as, say, space. 
if you know when if the film yeah. is space, you get that vastness underwater just seems awkward yeah. um it's just and, a bit slow in it yeah, everything's just a bit slow and these bubbles get the way the camera and stuff. And it was really, really well filmed in that everything's like crystal clear. Um, they, they obviously things kick off and supernatural elements kick off it's around. It's like it would need a reasonable budget. Dwindling oxygen. I think for me, I was watching it and I thought when I realised they were going to stand in this dive and the dive is the film. I, I thought that this is fine, and they're both doing a good job of, you know, the sort of rising, escalating panic. But for me, when the supernatural elements started kicking in, yeah. of course, what happens is oh, it's a load, of, it's a load of panicking and bubbles, and having no sense of geography of where anyone is in the film because you just, they obviously it's 360 movements, so they just go on. And I thought, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with this, and it was okay. I'm looking at the IMDb rating now, and it's 5.3, and I said, well, for a low budget horror, that's probably right. Um, the man in it though, uh, is James Jagger, Mick Jagger's son. I didn't know really? he was there. Um, but it's how old is he? Oh, I think we disconnected for a second there. How old is? James Jagger. Did you hear that? Did you hear that weird sound then? No. Was it? No, it must. Ooh, it must have been spooky. Like a, I know. Yeah, it was. It was a weird sonar sound. I guess it's Skype on my end. Must have been an underwater ghost. Yeah. Bloody brilliant band. Um, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. Sorry, go on. Um, so how old is James Jagger? I don't think I've ever heard of him. It's almost like yeah. I didn't know he existed. James Jagger is. He was born in 1985. Okay, so yeah, so he's 52. All right, okay. I don't know. I was just envisaging like some youngster, some youthful like kid. No, no, he's he's in his 30s. But it's it's he's been in a lot of films actually. From looking at this from 2009, he's like looks like a lot of low budget horrors, but that's absolutely fine. But it's I think if if you were someone, I can imagine if you were someone who had like an interest in diving. Or, and I can imagine this would maybe be interesting if you were involved in the industry to see how it was filmed, because it is quite interesting to have a film that's purely underwater, that's almost, you know, POV. Does it look like it's genuinely underwater for the most part? Because yeah, yeah, it, it like does feel like phony underwater can look bad. No, no, it looks great. It's just the it. It's for me when the novelty of oh that's quite interesting they're doing this when the novelty of that runs out, which for me was about 30 35 minutes in it, it became very it's it's like this is just a standard horror a very yeah. bog standard horror with with something a little twist thrown in i think a lot of more people will enjoy it much more than i did if they're into you know diving and stuff but it, it's effectively a standard horror and i didn't okay. really get much from it aside from thinking oh, it was quite a cool premise where is this available is this primer it is a primer. And also, I couldn't help but feel at the start when it sort of establishes the relationship between the couple. just thought that he just seemed a bit of a prick. And you know what you think? Well, why? That sounds pretty standard for horror as well, well Yeah, wh- why are you with him? <laughs> um, so there was a touch uh, of that. The common refrain. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to move on to my theme for this week, which is Will Smith movies. Good, absolutely fine. Not quite sure why I started out watching will smith i know it's because i wanted because i wanted to watch ali uh, which i'll talk about now which is on netflix and prime so take it yeah um and this is the 2001 biopic of muhammad ali aka cassius clay directed by michael mann 
And I was surprised to find this was a, a flop at the time. I figured this was like Will Smith in his dramatic heyday, but um, turns out, no, it was up against Lord of the Rings, to be fair. So I guess it was never going to do too well. Uh, so, yeah, the film covers the period 64 to 74, basically up to the rumble in the jungle against George Foreman. Um, but in the meantime, um, Cassius Clay converts to Islam he becomes a conscientious objector to avoid the Vietnam draft. And he actually becomes a bit of a pariah, to be honest, um, but also a kind of racial hero of the post-civil rights, post-Malcolm X period. Um, and I like this movie. I love, I love the pacing and the editing. There's no, you know, with biopics, you can get bogged down in some pretty mundane bullshit, but this just jumps from key moment to key moment. And, it lingers only on significant events uh, in the kind of sporting, political and personal realm. And it's a really good performance from Will Smith. Like, it's just a good bit of casting because his natural charisma mm. underlies the this, this physical and vocal transformation. And he, he really does embody Ali. Uh, I'd say the only thing I'm not so sure about is the mood of the film. And this is quite a tricky one to kind of explain, but... Roger Ebert, he felt the, the obviously the, the film critic Roger Ebert felt it felt like a, a eulogy, and I'm inclined to agree with him. It's it's not a very triumphant mood in the film. It's very morose, almost regretful atmosphere to the whole thing, which is strange because of course when it was made, he was definitely not anywhere near dead or anything, so it's not like it was any kind of a eulogy. It was strange. I also think it slightly fails to convey what Muhammad Ali actually meant to people because there's like one scene where he's in Africa and he's surrounded by these locals in Zaire but it never really gets to why it was that he was so important to so many people uh, and, it, and it kind of made me think well it does a good job of humanising him but not such a good job of providing the social context uh saying that like the fight scenes are really really good and the rumble in the jungle is a brilliant fight to end on so um i mean there's not much you can really do with a sporting biopic uh i suppose it was i mean after scorsese made raging bull they, they haven't really improved on that in terms of like breaking free of the confines of the boxing picture but I think when it comes to sporting biopics, it all comes down to like editing, performance, style. And I think Ali scores highly on those counts. It's like this is still when Michael Mann was at the top of his game. So it's it's really good. Worth a watch, if slightly imperfect. I'm probably not going to watch that. Is that 2001, did you say? Yeah. God, I remember there being advertised in the Muni in my hometown of Pondipree. That's probably one of the last films there. But I, yeah, with with biopics, I, it has to be someone I have like a real vested interest in t- to watch. And I mean, yeah. Muhammad Ali is obviously a, a, means a lot to a lot of people, but it wouldn't be enough to to, to draw no. me to it. And from what you said, is it is it so? Is there any of the sort of the, the, the style that we've come to expect from Michael Mann? Or was he was it is this the film that he feels like he did yes. for money. No, no, I think he, he he genuinely means it. And it's and this is before he started getting really obsessed with 
sticking digital cameras up people's noses and stuff because there's not too much of that it still looks like a classical film which is what i always thought michael mann was so good at and what bothers me about his more recent output is the way that he's got these you might as well be filming on an iphone really you know like you watch someone like miami vice or black hat and they're like they're solid enough thrillers but or public enemies even they're solid enough but they're just there's something about that horrible like digital handheld style of like sticking it in people's faces and constantly moving it around and it's like it looks like found footage yeah, half the time collateral had a lot of that and i watched that yeah. recently. that was yeah yeah i know what you mean i was quite... was, i'd say it's just on the side of bearable but it just got worse and worse it's because uh-huh. yeah. I, I remember watching that and thinking like there's a lot of camera movement here actually so yeah no sometimes I, you get no. artificial camera movement you, as if it's been added afterwards <laughs> if you know what yeah. i mean with not surely mean. Not, why would it be moving around that much i don't get it there's something yeah it bothers me when it's so obviously handheld because it can really take you out of it there's something quite beautiful and unearthly about a just a good tracking shot or like a steady cam shot or something it's like <clears throat> it there's a disembodied quality to it where it it doesn't feel like human movement you know whereas if you've got like a tiny digital camera stuck in someone's face and it's wobbling around all over the place and getting knocked around you're like well it just feels like i'm watching this feels like i am the cameraman here um yeah he is he is 80 now he is 80 and still making making films i have a real dread about heat too i've got to say i thought that was just a book it was a book it is a book but he's de- it's being made and i've got some real dread about that it's a film which 100 percent never needed a sequel or a prequel and but mm. but don't forget that um it doesn't matter. I mean, I know the original's great, but it should it shouldn't diminish your enjoyment of the original. It's just no, it's it won't. No, I mean, if it. Although I mean, I love the original so much that. Oh really? I, yeah, it's that. I it would take a very special movie to make me want to watch it because I I wouldn't want it to diminish anything about it. You know, like this is why I won't watch the fourth indiana, indiana jones, jones film, for you yeah. because which, I which is better my... than the second indiana jones film. yeah no, <laughs> yeah well because i didn't want to i had my had my perfect moment and um with the trilogy and they rode off into the sunset and i'm done and that's that's that it, I, I would tease you mercilessly until you hung yourself but the truth is that like i, I feel the sort of same way about monkey island that right. after the first two i thought i know mean, they just released the, the 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 sort of natural sequel to the second one and it, i think i don't feel like i need to play it I, I don't I don't yeah. I don't I, and I, I don't think that happens with like with films I I I'd happily dive into anything but with that game yeah so I kind of understand where you're coming from you think I you just don't feel the need to watch it it doesn't kind of matter if it's good or bad because <laughs> you've got your personal relationship with yeah with the, the films how they are and you're done with it yeah it's not yeah. like we're bereft of movies all we have to do is look is just search for the name Godfrey Ho on Prime and you got a lifetime right there so um do you have that same relationship with the boondock saints will you not watch the sequel that's right exactly that. <laughs> that's yeah. that's right that is right and that is accurate um 
Yeah, I laughed the other day actually because I said something that was incorrect, and Faye looked at me in the eye and said, "You are wrong. You are wrong." Twice in a really flat voice, and it really tickled me. It was it was like it was like being told I was incorrect by artificial intelligence. Um, so you were wrong. You were wrong. Uh, <laughs> not doing very well at this quiz, love. Um, I'm gonna move on from that to Asterix, the Mansion of the Gods, or Asterix, Les Domaines des Dieux. Do you watch this 23 times? Uh, no, no, that is, this is one I watch once, but I would watch another other time, not another 22. Um, I My history with Asterix is weird, because I remember having a few comics when I was a kid um, and kind of enjoying them because of all the, the physicality in them. But, but then I've never really watch any films or any other media i mean they were, they were mega drive games with asterix in i'm not gonna like Europe, but they were tough they were the the jump mechanic in asterix on the mega drive oh she was a doozy it was one of those ones where every jump was absolute life or death and because of like the sort of baggy floppy leathery shoe you couldn't quite tell where where you could land and where you couldn't oh my god what was like so it was one of those you're like you're balancing on a single heel pixel and jumping so the, and it's still, like the gameplay is pixel perfect but the sprite is anything but yeah well you, you know in those games when, when it's a tutorial you do a jump you think fuck i barely made that and every time you do a jump you get <laughs> you get a sweat on <laughs> oh my god i'm not gonna go far um <clears throat> like the so, smurfs on the atari yeah yeah, yeah literally yeah, that's the perfect probably the earliest example of it yeah so asterix mansions of the gods this it was on um i think it was on disney plus actually but i thought well, i'll just chuck it on um it was one of the days i had with my son uh who's 46 now so i said i'm gonna watch this and he was like, oh, okay i'm gonna drink and a fight inmate and i really enjoyed this because i i had no i put it on thinking well if i'm not enjoying it it's a kid's film and i can just sort of wander off but it's actually really really funny and a lot of the humor is is clearly meant for adults because it's it's in it's in sort of odd subtleties um so the plot is that asterix and obelix and get a fix you know the Gaul, the gauls effectively are in their little village and it cuts to caesar and his uh, council and they, they're saying that we can't take this village <laughs> they keep on beating the shit out of us what can we do and effectively um someone suggests why don't we just build <laughs> the mansions of the gods these huge towering estates right next to their village uh and effectively just like, put them off and make them move out and, <laughs> so and gentrifying uh, them okay yeah yeah, yeah yes and so and uh, and it's quite amusing so they, they move there and, and obviously the girl's like what are they doing and then they sort of get suckered into um the marketing practices and and, and all this sort of stuff and then the film goes out the way it does but i w- what i wanted to say was i was surprised by how funny i found it uh, because there's something in the way that the roman soldiers run and the mm. way that punches are delivered that completely flashed me back nostalgically to christ this is exactly like it was in the in the in the comics um there's a lot of really nice callbacks to it and the animation is really wonderfully smooth and fluid uh, and um there's just there's a lot of fun in the way that especially with the romans the way they talk to each other um like there's a scene where i don't I can't, i'm not going to do it justice now but there's a scene where caesar's saying right we're going to build these these buildings in you know, these huge blocks of flats effectively and get people to live in them like towering over the gaul village what, what are we going to call them and then um 
and it's everything they say echoes in this huge marble <laughs> this huge marble building they're in and um Caesar's like really sort of disinterested in what's going on. Like it's like it's just a pain in his ass. And someone says, "Oh, how about the mansions of the gods?" And and then Caesar sort of like steeples his fingers and says, "Well, it's not very good, is it? <laughs> but I can't think of anything better. So yeah, we'll do that." Uh, and and it just it just tickled me. And there's a lot of deliveries of that through like Caesar and the Romans, where it's uh, it's really funny. Whereas obviously when it goes to the Gauls, it's much more slapstick. Really funny film. We'll happily watch it again. There is a problem. Yes. I was watching it and I thought the voice actor for Asterix is getting on my fucking nerves. And he's just got this really sort of soft, oh, just the voice that's just bereft of any character. And as I was watching, I thought, because how, how would you imagine Asterix to sound? You know, you know, Asterix, the character. Yeah. Uh... A, like a mustachioed blonde sort of obviously quite a short person but obviously in his looks like he's in his 40s how would you imagine asterix the kind of voice he would have um it's hard to describe you're gonna say is is he is this gonna be played by jack whitehall is that what you're gonna say it's jack whitehall's because i would not imagine it to be jack whitehall i don't know what i'd imagine it to be but not him it's just too clean and young and and like innocent yeah yeah yeah. and 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 it, it it's a yeah, I'd imagine because he's got a moustache as well, isn't he? If if my memory serves, yeah, 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 yeah a drooping so, moustache, yeah. Yeah, and it, I was, it was struck me as not being particularly young, and Jack Whitehall's very young sounding. Yeah, like you, you, you want a bit of rasp to it, you know, or like yeah. a bit of ba- a bit of bass, and yeah, yeah, you, I, yeah, you need something a bit more mature, because then you have got Oblix, who's obviously just a kind of hulking. A doofus sort of thing, doofus, yeah. yeah. But he's he's in some really um actually quite. It's you know when it, when you're watching a, especially an animated film and you're having such a good time with it that the sentimentality hits home. Yeah. If you know what I mean, like the sentimentality works, and you know you like I know it's being sentimental, but I'm having such a good time. I'm even on board with that. There are some scenes with him like at a little Roman child that are really cool and a dog. But yeah, I mean if I just list because. I'm, and there's a few Asterix films dotted around. I've noticed on Disney Plus and yeah. Prime and Netflix. And I'm going to watch them all. And I'm going to t- a little tidbit about the next one I'm trying to watch. And I am going to go back to it, but I just want to mention something. Remind me of the 70s one. But I might just watch the original French versions with subtitles because mm-hmm. I, I just think I'm looking at this, right? And you've got the, the original. Well, it's because it was released through a different production company. So the, this, this Asterix, The Mansions of the Gods, has got three versions. There's the French version, the Ocean production versions, and the Kaleidoscope Entertainment version I watched. So I don't know anyone from the other versions, obviously. It's just it's just a lot of French names to me. But if I read out some of the names for the version I watched, and you'll see it's like I just... I've made a mistake, basically. You've got Jack Whitehall, Nick Frost, Greg Davis, Matt Berry, Catherine Tate, Harry Enfield, Dominic Wood. And just people I don't I don't want to hear their voices. And um and yet I did for two hours. So um and next time I'm gonna watch an Asterix film, I'm gonna make sure that it's just the original French version so I can't be distracted by just twats. Um Yeah. Even and- when I was a kid reading Asterix, which I did. I remember even having the sense then that it was slightly weird, like uh, not British humour kind of thing, if you see what I mean. So I think that having the original French might help that sense of it being uh, a slightly different style of humour. 
yeah, it'll pu- it'll pull out the sort of differences in the culture. Yeah, I, I just yeah, I, that's what I'm going to do. But because this was rather than this... wheeling out rent a bloody British thespian like that that cast. Yeah, yeah, like I'll get them in because they're they're you know hot at the moment. It just it just reeked of just like sort of of the moment casting. Um, I tried to watch another, so I am going to watch it. But I basically put on it was. I can't remember what it was called. It's the 1974 Asterix film. It has got a subtitle, Twelve and tasks? it's got yes. So yeah. I, I pop that. I pop that on, and there's it, a bit at the start where it's it's sort of introducing the um introducing the the, the citizens of, of Gaul, the, this little village they live in, mm. and it's like oh this Obelix, you know, we drank too much of the magic potion, and now he's like super strong. Here's dogmatics. Here's get a fix. Here's blah blah blah. Hmm. And it says, here's Asterix. He's uh, one of the most intelligent villagers. And yeah, he can say hello in many different languages. And he starts saying, like, salut, hola, all this sort of stuff. Hmm. And then before he says konnichiwa, he puts his fingers up to the corners of his eyes and pushes them back. Oh. And, I, and I thought, oh, that wouldn't happen now, would it? And, uh, and <laughs> I just frowned thought, upon. I would be frowned upon. So I, 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 I stopped it because I thought I'm going to have to – because I didn't realize – how it would be dated in that sense if you know what i mean so i thought i'm gonna have to sit down and watch this because i did enjoy but again i stopped it because i was watching the english dub and i want to get back to the french dubs i think yeah i'm intrigued by this because i i yes i do have a fondness for asterisks i remember being oh really quite funny and charming as uh, a book series so yeah i I fully intend to pick up some more but um i have you seen this film I have not. No, no, it's really funny. I do. I do. I was surprised by how on board with it I just was from the start. Is it um, is it two D animation or is it CG by now? It's CG. Yeah. This is CG. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's it's really luxurious as well. There's something about oh. it that's like really pleasing on the eye. The roundness of everything, and just the the constant visual jokes and stuff. It's just it's just really funny. They're clearly very popular still. These Asterix movies because they're still making them. They've yeah. been making them for fifty years. So. Um, cool. I'll check that out. Please um, do. Please do. It's also available on Prime, by the way, Mansion of the Gods. So Disney oh, and Prime. Nice. Good. Yeah. Um, right. Next Will Smith movie. Seven pounds. <laughs> oh my God. I, you know, I was gonna, I was going to ask if you watch this as a joke yes. because I just remember it being. Oof. Okay. Off you go. It was made in two thousand eight, and uh, Will Smith plays a, a lonely widower. And he's an IRS debt collector. He's roaming the Californian coast, popping into. Alexa just literally woke up. I don't know why. She's talking to me. Oh, she's telling me about the Californian coast. Amazing. Anyway, thank you, Alexa, for that little interruption. So he's roaming the Californian coast, popping into the lives of these various struggling people who owe money to the US government, of course. He's planning to kill himself and donate his organs. And his school friend, Barry Pepper, is going to assist with this. Um, But before then, he's going to do some good with his life, redistribute money to good people and take it away from bad people. Like a kind of suicidal Robin Hood or something. Um. Well, that's the episode title sorted, isn't it? (laughs) It is. So he meets this this woman called Emily. Um, And basically, 
there's literally no objective reason for Will Smith's character to determine that Emily is a good person, right? She's played by Rosario Dawson. So you can see where this is going. There's never an acknowledgement in this film of the idea that she's just single and hot and basically fancies her and then he feels sorry for her. He doesn't acknowledge that at all. It's just like, oh, she's just like a good person. But no, I think he just fancies her. But anyway, it it's such a thumpingly like sentimental film. I thought there was a point when I thought to myself, this can't be real. Like there has to be a sixth sense type twist in this film. <laughs> um, and you can kind of imagine how that would work. But like in terms of like edge, it, it's vaguely hinted at that handing out organs is some kind of method of self-flagellation out of guilt. But the the movie's way too schmaltzy to explore that kind of territory. It's like it's pure Oscar bait material, basically. And it it reminds me of films like so I suppose from there's a period maybe 20, 2005 to 2015, maybe exemplified by stuff like Crash, not that one, um, and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and things like The Hours and The Blind Side. Real Oscar bait crap. And it's kind of, it's a kind of movie that's distinguished by dishonesty and manipulation. Dishonesty about the, just like the human condition and emotional manipulation. And these kind of films uh they're meant to they're meant to reassure you i suppose about the goodness of humankind but i just come away feeling like i've been like hoodwinked by emotional grifters really by the Mm. end of it i don't believe in a moment of it and and you will notice that this sort of film is not intended to entertain like it it doesn't exist to make you think Is, is is this sort of like a video version of like grief porn in, exactly it's that it's grief lit yeah so uh it doesn't it doesn't exist to make you think it wants you to believe and that's and i suppose you could argue oh well, that's the purpose of cinema but not if you're ostensibly portraying the real world as this film proposed to do and it's the purpose is is not to entertain really or to even inform and certainly not to challenge it's to make you feel like you're a good person for watching it that's what I got from it. Like, you're not really going to be entertained by this because it's too depressing and sentimental. And it's not challenging because it's just, again, so emotionally dishonest. So the its only purpose is to make you come away feeling like you're a better person for having watched it. And, and that's just an indulgence. I'm not willing. I... I I personally came away feeling worse. <laughs> like I felt, uh, yeah. I felt, I felt violated after this. This Seven is this, terrible. This sounds like my my kryptonite, like movie yeah. kryptonite to me, because I, I remember when my mother would watch like Odyssey films, and it would be about I don't know, I think it was called the Ryan White story, okay. about, about like you know a child dying of AIDS and just the family having to deal with it. Okay. And say, I can't, I can't watch this. I can't watch this. It just makes me want to cry. And, the I, and it's in our uh, stars. That's another piece of crap. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I that just, kind of movie. Uh, it's like, it's like what. what what is this for? Like, I'm not entertained. I, I, 
I'm not entertained. I'm not moved. It's like, it's like a, I don't know. It, maybe it's for people to, uh, to watch at the cinema on a date to make them look good in front of a, a hot chick. And I just think, well, in that case, you're a grifter as well. Yeah, I, 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 this has no place in my life, I don't think, because <laughs> I, I, this is really, this is, yeah, this is something that would not appeal to me. <laughs> like possibly the film that would, it's one of those things that I think if I was sitting there face with, I'm going to, you know, you choose a film, she put this on, I'd say I'm going to bed because I'm not, I, I know I'll, I'll just get, I'll either cry or I'll just sit here just feeling disgusted. Uh, you won't uh, what is it doesn't, the, have, it doesn't even have that level of oh like, so it's not even that level efficiency of, like, where it tugs on you no. so, who is the target audience for this then <sighs> don't know it's pretty middle brow though i'm not sure if it did well or not uh as a movie i'm not sure because it's got barry pepper in it so they're actually getting exactly well all, so all, the, all the women to just fawn over him obviously <laughs> well it's got barry pepper in it so clearly the target audience is me Barry Pepper, the only man in the world who can fit the entire bottom half of his face into a pencil sharpener. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's one of those movies. Crack I'm not going to watch it. Can I talk about something good now? Please do. Well, I'm not going to, but I'll keep okay. talking. Um, I have watched Pink Fong and Baby Shark Space Adventure 23 times in the last two weeks. When I was I was thinking about when I was watching it for like the 20th time, like sort of my eyes spinning in my head, going Baby Shark, da, 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 laughing at the ceiling, um, wishing there was a God that existed and that he hated me and he would strike me down. I was thinking back to films I've seen. Or just remove Baby Shark from Netflix. Probably yeah, easy. or just have just say like a cost ninety nine p to watch and be like, I'm not gonna pay ninety nine p for that, mate. Um, sixty five minutes, by the way. Um, I will talk about it properly, but I was thinking when I was watching this film about films I've seen the most in my lifetime because I was I thought I'm watching this film now. I, when it came to like you know double digits in within a week, I watched this film seven times in one day at one point. I, I was thinking, what films have I seen the most? And I I remember there was one there was that one summer that I watched Commando every morning when I was in school, summer holidays, like a teenager. And I watched Commando every morning with my breakfast to start my day. It's, it's the wisest decision I've ever made. And um, so I must have seen that. There's six weeks in the summer holidays. Uh, so I must have seen that film like you know, 30, 40 times sort of thing. And I did the same thing a few years later with uh, From Dust Till Dawn. That must have been 96, 97. I, I must have watched that film about 30 or 40 times. And... Big Lebowski was a film that my friend and I would put on when we came back from a night out when we were in our late teens, and that would be like the film we put on. So I probably watched that dozens of times as well. Yeah. What about what? What for you? What What would you say as films you've seen the most? Well, I mean, outside of like obviously the films you watch as a very young kid, like, well, like Scruffy, like VHS. Scruffy, yeah, on VHS. Um, yeah. I, th- I suppose in teenage Days to Confuse is one that I watched a lot with friends. Um, Days Confused, yeah, because it's just such an easy watch, like slacker comedy. So I probably watched that thirty or forty times. I would have thought over, yeah, over a long summer. I would have said, um, I can't really think. Although other ones that I've watched many, many, many times. Uh, no, I mean, I've probably I Terminator Two. I watched a lot. As a youngster, mm, yeah. because that was very exciting for me, because 
I was probably a little bit too young to be watching it, and yet it I it was available to watch, so I watched it <sighs> over and over again. And that was the non-director's cut, so you didn't get the weird Arnie smiling scene. <laughs> probably would have put me off. I used to have I used to have a Terminator Two box that was in a big metal tin, and you, you took the t- and it was all embossed. And you took the top off, and there was Terminator. I think it might have been Terminator One and Two in there VHS, okay. but it was it was one of my proudest possessions for years. Yeah. That was. Yeah, um, but those films, I would say, it's been a while since those days because you just don't have the time. But of course, as now a parent of a young child, it's a different story. So. Because they obsess over things for very mm. intense periods, and then they'll discard them like a tissue suddenly one day, and they'll be oh, yeah. interested in it again. The, the, this is the first time that I've been dragged into it because okay. with with my son, it's it's been shows like very short okay. shows like uh, Peppa Pig, Fireman Sam, that sort of stuff. This is the first time a film, I say feature length mm. film, it's, it's one hour and five minutes yeah. that he is like it's finished, and you'll be like. And as the credit, Again. he's like, pink, pink fong, and you're like, okay, off we go. And I got to the point where it became amusing for me. Like, it became, like, I'd watch it and the songs. Anyway, so I'll talk about the film, right? So the film is, Pink Fong is effectively this pink fox. Um, it's, obviously, it's obviously a typo, and the name should just be called Pink Fox. Um, kind of like Coco Melon, where you've got Coco Melon with yes. JJ and that family. It's just this... Ping Pong is another um, production company, and they are in space with Baby Shark of of the song that everyone knows, and they get into a, like a crash with an asteroid. They they call it they hit an asteroid, and he says, "Oh, we hit that meteor." And I thought, "Was it a meteor? Is yeah. an asteroid? Doesn't it, an asteroid become a meteor when it's in a planet's so. um, gravitational pull?" Yeah. So yeah, so, so I think I, the I, I wrote is... straight off to the production company about that. <laughs> I think it's an asteroid, and then when it it enters orbit the atmosphere uh, yeah yeah it, well it, it's a it's a meteor if it burns up in the atmosphere and then a meteorite if it makes it to the ground which renders the title of the sean connery uh, disaster movie well not quite as threatening because of course if it's a meteor sean and it's not going to hit the earth so you're in, in under no threat oh right oh, sorry about that Rupert. yeah um, well that's obviously that's what spoiled that movie? It would be funny if, like, King Fong at the side of this, as there's like a a huge rock hurtling towards the little spacecraft bubble, which looks like it's got single glazing on the bubble in all fairness, and um, coming towards them, and then Pink Fong goes, "Oh no, it's a meteor!" And then Baby Shark went, da, 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 da. <laughs> "It's an asteroid at the moment." Um, yeah, uh, maybe that's why they crashed. Maybe that's the deleted scene because they were too busy like explaining the sort of difference to each other that they forgot to just get out of the way. Um, so yeah, and and then this star on the front of the spaceship gets separated into five different places and they have to go around the galaxies to each planet, picking up parts of the star so Ping Fong can get home, which seems like the perfect setup for a basic kids film. But what it actually is, right? Bear with me on this. What it actually is is a load of really basic CG. And then when they land on each planet, it cuts to just a load of effectively stock footage of 2D songs that they just staple onto the film. So it's just them going, oh, we're on Dinosaur Planet. Oh, here's a dinosaur. And then it'll cut to a song called Dinosaur Raw, which is clearly just on YouTube or whatever. And they've just inserted. And 
And it and there's about five, obviously Baby Shark did, did did it. There's about five versions of that song just with lyrics replaced. And the, the lyric replacement where it's like um Baby Monkey did did it. They get more and more awkward as the film goes on, and it'll be like a disco version of Baby Shark or whatever. And I think that's why it's hypnotic for children. But it is possibly the most facetious money grab I've come across in terms of the movie industry. It's astonishing how much, how little effort they people put into this <laughs> and how much obviously just came shooting out of the other end. It's staggering, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's a whole industry of this crap, isn't there? On YouTube and stuff. It just amazes me. I mean, Coco Melon has slightly higher uh, production values, but not much given their multi multi million dollar you know revenue Pro- probably billion i mean the thing probably. is it's weird isn't it and, and we don't often talk about kids stuff on the podcast but watching stuff like coco melon where and there's a game on the switch by the way it's a company called um og games and they make a lot of like peppa pig and uh baby shark and coco melon video games for kids and they're actually really good i actually sent mm. them a thank you email the other day because the games are so basic that like uh, uh, my son can just can completely get on board with them. So left, right, and one button, and he is controlling JJ, and he'll possibly be like JJ, and it's so basic he can't possibly lose. Um, and it is, it is, is, it's really lovely to see him interacting with the characters he knows. But yeah. so I sent them a nice email the other day, no swear words or anything. But with this, this is just a, like a blatant cash grab. And and I think I was when I was watching it over and over and over again, driving up those viewing figures. That obviously, you know, that someone gets a spreadsheet of that at Netflix. Which yeah. is where I saw it, and you know they're thinking, "Oh my God, this this film has been seen forty million times this month," and I sort of just think, "Let's just let it happen." But it, it, the more I watched it, the more I realised how mm-hmm. lazy it Cynical. was. Yeah, and yeah, and I, and it became weirdly wonderful to me, and also because it's sixty five minutes, it's not. I'd rather watch this thirty times than if my son was hip steep into an avengers film which was three hours because right. i think that would make me want to blow my brains out in front of him <laughs> uh, and the, my last words would be this is your fault um but but the, this is this is different it's like an hour i can laugh at that luck and laugh at it and it's over whereas if it was like into something that was like an actual film that i had sort of any mild interest in i i would it would grate at me a lot more so you almost have a grudging admiration for it you admire yeah, its purity. I, I think it's the one film that we put on when he's like, ping pong, and I'll put it on, and I almost l- laugh insanely in my <laughs> mind. I just like, I think, ah, I'm watching it again. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like, well, how many times can I watch it? And what, what I've gone through, like, you know, from, from one to five, uh, we watched it when he had chicken pox. So I was falling over him, make sure he was okay. And he was being such a good little boy. We're watching this film and it's, it, we bonded and he turned around and like sing the songs and say little parts and do little dance actions. Then it came to like 10 to 15 times. And I thought, oh, it's getting on my nerves a bit now. And then from 20 plus, you become weirdly insane with it. Like it just becomes, <laughs> it's just this like never ending loop that I'm stuck in. And, and yeah, I'm quite, even I could watch it after this podcast by myself. <laughs> Um, so basically you're saying it's not so much a recommendation as it's 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 sent you insane yeah it's okay, like if, well, i mean if, that's that's praise of sorts i mean if you imagine you were stuck in a room if you were if you were mm. kidnapped and you were stuck in a room 
and every five minutes someone came in and hit you on the forehead with a with a slightly warm toffee hammer and then left and you think that was really irritating but then it would almost become you'd be in that room for so long you would start to crave crave company so those every 10 minutes you'd be like oh when's he gonna come and hit me i can you know i think it's that sort of thing yearning for a toffee hammer um right okay i'm not sure it really counts as a recommendation because i I don't know if i'm gonna call this episode suicidal robin hood or yearning for a toffee hammer now (laughs) (laughs) just make a note of them all um okay i'm gonna whiz through two will smith movies here because well, it's not that much to say about them. Uh, con- okay. Concussion is on Netflix. This was made in 2015. I don't even know what this is. Uh, it's a true story of someone called Bennett Amalu, who's a Nigerian immigrant to the USA. And he is a forensic pathologist who made this scientific link between head impacts in American football and long term mental health degradation, um, often resulting in suicide. Mm. It's a it's a very maudlin tone to this one with this very drippy sentimental score by James Newton Howard. Uh, Will Smith is decent. Does that, why does, does James Newton Howard ring a bell for me? Uh, he should do. I mean, he works a lot with, let me think, um, M. Night Shyamalan. He works a lot with him. Uh, it's just a film that rings a bell for some reason. Sorry. Um, yeah. So, so Will Smith is decent. And, and, and there's this, journey of this very optimistic man who's very stoic in the face of multiple blows from an institution a country that he loves and it's quite well observed but it's a true story that is force-fed into like the underdog story generator and so what you get actually is just a parade of cliches you get you get this idiosyncratic expert versus these robotic suits and you get the worried wife providing the wavering hero with whispered inspiration and you get shady agents following the protagonists in blacked out cars you get you even get a moment with like a scientific revelation which is realized in an instant while looking through a microscope he literally just looks up from the microscope and goes my god so yeah not sure it happened that way but um and this, the film also has this weird need to keep reminding us that Bennett Amalu is as patriotic and American as anyone else. And I don't know why that is. I, it it felt to me like they're trying to reassure us he's not a voodoo doctor or something like the film literally begins by listing his academic accomplishments to make it clear that it's OK. This African doctor can actually be a serious doctor. It's a little bit patronizing uh but yeah it's um it's indicative of a film that would prefer to portray this man's struggle as a civil rights issue more than simply a very rich corporation in this case the nfl protecting their own interests that seems like the real issue here and i don't think it really centers on that at all it's just a bit of a Oh, so this, so this isn't. Hang on now. So this isn't like. Um, was it called? Was it called Blackwater? That film with Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Where it's all, so it's. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not, not an issue movie like that where it's like the little people versus the kind of corporate Dark machines Dark so much. Yeah, that's it. Um, it's much more of like it's much more focused on this civil rights aspect of it, and um, I don't know. It just seemed. 
I think it would have been more interesting as uh, a film about corporate power, to be honest. But I don't know. It just felt like they were kind of dodging the real issue there. Uh, mm. It's okay, but it's really quite inessential. You could probably read a Wikipedia article and get just as much out of it. I will also mention the film called Hitch, which was on Prime, but I think is now gone. My mother uh, loves this film. You're not missing anything. This was I'm made in 2005. It. This is an entirely generic rom-com from, frankly, the peak generic rom-com period of the noughties. And Will Smith plays a date doctor who's a smooth talker who helps hapless men talk to women effectively. Inevitably, he meets his match um, in a woman and predictably they'll melt each other's hearts while discovering it's, it's not about the one liners and the swagger. It's about being your own perfectly imperfect self. Yeah. So it hasn't aged particularly well because I just kept thinking like male dating advice of this kind of tactical kind has taken a very dark, like alt-right misogynistic it's, it's, turn. It's very red pill, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, very much. And, and then the woman he's kind of like courting, she's a fucking gossip journalist um, who has the temerity, frankly, to criticize his line of work, which I thought was astonishing. Anyway, is this Amber, Amber Valletta? No, this is uh, Eva Mendes. Right. Say, yeah. Uh, the style of humor is like mildly inappropriate slapstick and some quirky observational comedy. So that's your favorites right there. Uh, it's never funny or surprising. Now, obviously, Will Smith is charming, and there is some kind of primal pleasure in seeing him and Eva Mendes hit it off, I guess. But, and I can't believe I got this far without mentioning this, Kevin James is in this film, and he is the man who is kind of the goofy, uh, likable, knockabout, slapstick protagonist. Uh, but it's Kevin James, and he's not funny or or charming. So uh, <laughs> he's not. He's, he's not. There's no pleasure in that. Uh, yeah. So Hitch, don't bother. Um, if you look at, I'm just inviting everyone to do this. If you if you type in Hitch movie cover, so it's Will Smith's Hitch, the cure for the common man, and. If you look at his clothes, right, he's wearing like a, they seem to be like brown, brown shoes, black, black jeans, good shout. And then he's got a a ostentatious belt buckle and he's got a blue T-shirt tucked in. But then over that, he's wearing an over, it's not, it's not, it's not oversized, it's overly long. So it's almost like a dress shirt that he's keeping out. So he's got his arms too long. And then a corduroy, like sort of velvet jacket over the top. And I think... Look, that kind of looks okay to post it. When you look at it, you think, why Why isn't that shirt done up and tucked in? Because that, that's a very long shirt. Yeah, that really is. The blue, that only the blue looks just good, doesn't it? I mean, that yeah. just looks like trashy. And it looks super... Like, like sports blue, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You you are right though with um with the whole thing. I was I'm, we had a this is going back a few years uh, a very long time when we had the conversation about Reddit and the, the blue pill red pill uh, thing with it all right and um I I say I was surprised I 
I try not to be surprised at how low the human race can stoop, but sometimes they really pull them out. And I, I, I got not involved in a conversation, but I witnessed a conversation about, you know, one of these uh, red pill male gurus to tell you like how to get women. And, yeah. and it's weird how Who they, I suppose it is now reached this apotheosis with someone like Andrew Tate. I don't know what that is. Is that Catherine Tate's husband? No, Andrew Tate is some horrendous misogynist, like openly misogynistic guy, but just like really, really quite vicious. Uh, it's and, it's uh, weird. Oh yeah, and a genuine like domestic abuser as well. On top of that, that's weird that those things would go hand in hand, isn't it? Well, he's been arrested now because he lives in Romania with his brother, and they've been arrested because for people trafficking or something so oh, fucking hell hey, just, yeah. but just for me what, what uh, my, yeah. my 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 dipped toes into that whole thing just astonished astonished at how they would generalize women as all being the same <laughs> oh what what women want right is and you know yeah. that's not quite how it works is it because as if they're this as if they're always scheming against men yeah, it is weird. I thought how so. If you flip that round, if you were like a gay man, you think right, what men want, right? It's mm. a, it's not, is it though? Because men, everyone is different, aren't they? And all women, yes. as well. It's such a basic thing, and 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 so if that's the ballpark they're going for, what women want, right? You instantly know this is bollocks. It's it's. <laughs> I, I I have that same view, but when you know the um, on like how to how to make millions or how to how mm-hmm. to start up a successful business and you're like what do you mean how to start up a successful bit like the word business is so broad what are you talking about <laughs> and you think like how could if i had a fly and it said how to how to make millions how as how to start a successful business i think well that's bollocks isn't it because <laughs> like you have no idea what business i have in mind from the start so yeah <sighs> well uh yeah well, it's yeah well with hitch there's something inherently unappealing about treating dating as some sort of power struggle anyway and i guess that in the end the point of the movie is that it's not really about that it's about the uniqueness of our personalities and stuff but it veers from the offensive to the sentimental yeah it does seem like it's very much indulging the thing that it supposedly criticizes which is and like i said i mean at the end of the day they are quite these two are quite unpleasant people on the surface. He is this date doctor. She is a gossip com- columnist. It's like, ugh, yucky. And yet they're all, both quite it, beautiful. So, yeah. In all fairness, it sounds like this film could be summed up by, if I, Kevin, like, knock on my door, I open it, Kevin James is there, and he says, oh, women don't fancy me. And I say, oh, just be yourself. And I slam that fucking door and charge him two grand. It sounds like that's where this film is basically it, yeah is there any is there any sort of and no point does you, he say well the problem is you're kevin james yeah. and you're not you're not funny or a charming klutz you're just an yeah idiot. I, I'm, I'm not gonna call your talent i'm not gonna call your talent or your weight into question that my first point has to be the fact that you aren't funny and you are a comedian and that is a dichotomy um i i find that with, with this is is there w- I thought, right, that the whole purpose of this film was that Will Smith tells men how to fall in love and meet their match, but he himself isn't in a relationship. It, does that come into it at all? Well, he is very resistant to any kind of like serious relationship. But then, of course, he meets his match in Eva Mendes because she plays hard to get. 
frankly, though, I don't believe that he hasn't met a woman like that before. So it's sort of doubly offensive because not only is it generalizing massively about women, it's also suggesting that women like her are very few and far between. But actually, she's just really quite ordinary. And what, if anything, what makes her stand out is that she's slightly rude and unpleasant. <laughs> and the fact that she's gossip columnist, I suppose. So ethically dubious on top of that. Yeah. So I'm it, having... hasn't, it hasn't aged well. Uh, Rupert, I'm having. I wish I could share my screen. I, I'm having a bit of a mind melt here because it looks like Will Smith's sh- shirt, the striped shirt on the cover, has been artificially extended by yeah. CG. Honestly, right. So I can't. I've yeah. typed in. Let me get. Let me get a close up on this. I've typed in Hitch movie, right? And and yeah. please do this at home, viewers, because as you were chatting, then I was idly doing something. I thought, why would that happen? So, you know, you know the um. Okay, the only way I can describe this is if you type in Hitch movie and then you click on, on the right, so you've got, you know, the one reason like leaning on the words yeah. Hitch face forward and his shirt is yeah. as long as his corduroy jacket. If you scroll down on the left and there's a there's a Hitch, an alternate cover, where he's side on, like oh, yeah, pointing, yeah. right? Look at the difference of length of his shirt in these pictures. Yeah, in the yeah. main one, that's really long, like it's below the corduroy jacket. On the side one... It's, the corduroy jacket is considerably longer. Yeah. That's so bizarre. Why would that happen? I don't know. Because oh, it looks, yeah. I mean, it's not a good combination anyway, but it's also proportionate. <laughs> like, the proportions are wrong as well. I've never, th- now I'm going to have to look at all movie posters and I can't trust clothing. I Like, <laughs> I'm going to look at movies and think, oh, hang on now, is that jacket artificially extended? As you got the sleeves rolled up, but then in post they've rolled them down. I, I don't know. This is, this is. It can't even trust it. Well, I'm not going to watch that film because I can't trust the poster, let alone the movie. The that sounds awful, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, do, do you know, in 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 a similar vein, if I may be so bold, I'm going to I'm going to move on to another film we received. A, we kindly received a screener from. Thank you very much, Warner Brothers. Magic Mike's Last Dance. Oh yes. Which kind of leads on nicely from what you were just saying, really. Um, and also, thank you to our listeners. We love you. Um, I want you to t- type this in, right? I want you to type into Wikipedia Magic Mike's Last Dance and look at the look at the poster. Okay. So, what, I, I want to talk about our experiences with the Magic Mike franchise, if I may, because I remember watching the original Magic Mike when it was released probably like 10 years ago now, I would guess, like 20, between 2011 and 2013. And Matthew McConaughey was, as Dallas, was one of the f- funniest parts of it. Because he did that thing where he was like, obviously really ripped, but he was quite skinny. He was like, always like leaning back, if you remember, with a cowboy hat on. And and, and the film was quite fun. It, I remember watching it and thinking, it's a lot of male strippers, it's a lot of like really impressive dancing. Yeah. I wasn't really crying out for a sequel, I don't know. Or two. <laughs> But and Channing Tatum, um, as a, as an actor, it's the first time I came across Channing Tatum. I don't know why I watched Magic Mike. I can't remember the situation I was in, but I remember thinking Channing Tatum is a, is a handsome man. He's got that kind of smoky, uh, slight, slightly distant sort of attraction. He's and, and I, I I think he used to be a male stripper before he went into acting. So he's he okay. can fuck oh, he can fuck and dance that man. You know he, he knows what he's doing and and it was him and a group of men and it was. Funny, simple, like probably 110, 120 minute, uh, boom, boom, boom. 
bit of drama thrown in. The girls love it, but so do the men because Channing Tatum's awesome. And then, of course, after that, I watched 21 and 22 Jump Street. One is better than the other. Can't remember which is which. But he, and then I, I thought, oh, no, he's got comedic chops and he's willing to take the piss at himself and he's got comic timing. And I was like, oh, do you know what? I'm kind of on board with Channing Tatum. Yeah. Magic, Magic Mike XXL was the sequel. Yeah. to the original and i thought that i've all this time kind of like the wii and the wii u i assumed it was like an extended version of it i thought it was almost like the anchorman director's uh, cuts that thing. would make sense anyway so i haven't seen it and that was 2015 oh yeah magic mike 2012 magic mike double xl 2015 wow um i, I wouldn't realize. say that i wouldn't say that channing tatum's a double xl i'm <laughs> i'm not double xl um anyway so when I got this, this is directed by Steven Soderbergh as well. Yes. I I thought, right, I said to Faye, do you mind if we watch Magic Mike's Last Dance? And weirdly, she said, no, not a problem for me. If you need to cover it for the podcast, I'll have to sit down and watch it. Like <laughs> the sacrifices are I know, that, that, that woman, oh, she's all hot. Um, <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay, let's check it on. And so the film starts off, and it's Salma Hayek. And I don't know if you know this, Rupert. Salma Hayek is pretty, right? She's, right, she's, okay. she's actually quite pretty. Um, he, this is the podcast for hot takes, isn't it? <laughs> so I Magic Mike for me was he's a male stripper and he falls in love and it's him balancing his stripper life with his love life. Second film, no idea what goes on. <laughs> but I remember having fond memories of Magic Mike. Uh, this film starts off and he is a barman. Uh, like a you know a barman you kind of hire for private functions summer hayek is minted she's got this beautiful like house overlooking you know la canyon or whatever or glass fronted and oh, double glazed as well uh yeah. car car power steering luxury <laughs> power steering electric windows no no choke in her car let me tell you and um i think it's a rover p6 now. <laughs> anyway um so yeah, so Salma Hayek, and she she hires you know him and his um, crew to 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 bartend for this private function she's got, and he sort of lightly flirts with her, and he gets recognised by one of her friends from his dancing days, and he's got this kind of, he's obviously completely ripped, he's a handsome bloke, Channing Tatum, although I feel like he could do with facial hair, and he's sort of slightly aloof, uh, he's just obviously like unaware of his own attractiveness, which is which is quite attractive in itself, and what happens is. She overhears this woman saying, I recognize you used to be a dancer. You danced at my like hen night or whatever. And uh, Salma Hayek, when everyone's gone home and he's packing up, she says, I'll come up to the house and do a dance for me. And these are key moments in the film. This is the first 15 minutes of the film. And I was waiting for him to start dancing because what always tickles me about male dancers, because I'd been to some male strip shows when I was a teenager and I was pissed and I just went in and told them I was gay so I could see some dick. And <laughs> what tickles me is it would... It, they would do this thing where they come out and they, they're all like sort of thing and, and then at some point invariably they just start thrusting and, and it's like it's just something funny about a man who's just like wildly thrusting if you know what I mean it's like someone it's like someone doing the full physical version of international track and field on Nintendo where they're like hammering buttons you know where the face the face yeah. goes really tense they're like yeah. and it's not sexy you're just thrusting anyway <laughs> I was waiting for the, like, this, he comes in, he's like, oh, do you want to dance? I do do that anymore. She's like, no, I want you to dance. And he's like, okay, well, turn the lights down. And he sets everything up and he puts music on. And he goes over and he's like stroking her face. And I was waiting for the initial thrust is what I was waiting for. When it gets silly. thrust. So what happens is he does sort of switch on. And in all fairness to Channing Tatum, 
it's a really beautiful sequence where he she's there and the and it's kind of quite clever how the mood goes from jovial and like oh go dance for me and he's like i don't want to and he's okay i'll do it then she pays him six grand and he's okay i'll do it and he literally puts the stereo on and just bursts into a routine instantly and, and admittedly channing whereas i thought i would find it amusing i was wishing i was selma hayek for the next five minutes because he was like literally just so smooth and so seductive i thought yeah i can imagine how she would think yes my my tits are coming out in a minute um, and, and, and he's like and he starts up dancing and of course it's like really sort of primal and and, and she gets on board and the, the, yes they eventually end up sleeping together but it is genuinely quite sexy and seductive and i thought that was really well done that was mm-hmm. there was no there, you don't laugh at that you were like on board with it that was a beautiful male dance anyway so i'm thinking 15 minutes in i fancy channing tatum and salma hayek now so i don't know what that makes me as mad and and, and i thought this is going to be a film about him getting back into it so there'd be like lots and lots of dances yeah you know what i mean and she would say let's you know get back into it and he's like, i want to get out of it but she's pushing him back into it. what actually happens is and it's really disappointing. She says, oh, I've minted. I own this theatre in London and I want you to, I'm going to knock the telephone and the play to piss off. And then I want you to direct the dancing for this play that's in London and mm-hmm. you have to direct it. And it's instantly boring. And mm-hmm. that opening 15 minutes, which was so strong and had me, had me, a straight man, wanting to watch more men dancing sexily in front of women it just turned into this sort of fish out of water light comedy where they go to London and he's not used to this wealth and this opulence and, and or directing a, as you, as you would be if you're a male stripper, not used to directing like a full London theater show. And, and it just goes on and on. I thought this is very boring. And then at some point I realized, Oh, hang on. They're trying to get back to the crux of the matter now, 45 minutes later where it's, Oh, is he doing this? Cause he wants it for money. Or is he doing it because he loves her? And it's like, well, of course he likes her because he had no interest in doing this. Like she's talked him through it and he's he's put up every step of the way. He keeps on saying, I, if you want me to just not do this, I, I won't. And I'm happy to just go back and, you know, have a few drinks or whatever. And she keeps pushing him. So there's no question about why he's doing it. There's no subterfuge at all. It's just him be, because he's kind of like slightly blasé going along with it because he's really polite and pleasant and I fancy him. So the whole spine of the narrative of the film, it just feels really fluffy because there's no question about this. And he's obviously happy enough to just be with you and you are creating this complexity and he's going along with it, kind of make you happy because he loves you. So for me, after the first 15 minutes, it was just like watching like a bad, badly paced TV show. Sounds like a bit conflict free. Yeah, I, I don't. And then at one point she's like, oh, you just want me for my money. And it's like, no, he, he clearly doesn't. I'm saying this as a, as a viewer. He, he doesn't. I'm not <laughs> questioning it. Um, I wish it was more lighthearted, a little bit more silly. And quite frankly, more Channing Tatum dancing and turning me on. Because it, what it turned into was this a quite just like sort of treacly, tedious drama more than a more than a fun mm-hmm. comedy, which is very much what I remember the first film being. Wow. Um, so it was really disappointing. I, I went from thinking this is going to be a silly laugh to actually thinking, oh, I hope this is good, to just being disappointed. It's a magic. Mike has grown up, become boring yeah. as a yeah. result. 
I want to see what Channing Tatum's next film is because I realized when I watched this, he feels like a man with a lot of potential. Yeah, he needs to be more he stuff. Can, he can do. He could be in an action film. He can do comedy. You know, he, I can imagine being a romantic lead. But this just felt like it was. It, it didn't even feel like it was being pulled in different directions. It felt like there was no threat anywhere at mm. any point. And I just thought this is just a badly paced televisual drama. I think he does need to do more action, really, because, you know, obviously he's in like White House Down, which is fine. But he's got a great physicality about him. And obviously being a dancer and stuff is bound to help with that. Uh, and I, I and I love the term song and dance man, like a man who can do anything. I I do yeah. love. That. I know it's an arcade term, but I love the term song and dance man, like someone who can is a jack of all trades. And he's yeah. forty three now, and I just wish I I want him to be in a film with some real edge. I bet he'd be amazing. He yeah, I mean, maybe he'll get like his own like action franchise or something at some point, a kind of John Wick type renaissance. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, okay. Well, I, I think I have seen Magic Mike 2, but it, it, I remember having Andy McDowell in it. That's all I remember. Do you, I just, do you when you look at Channing Tatum, yeah. look, look at it, just click on any picture of him and, and pull it up on Wikipedia and look, okay. look at it. Look, look at his face. Right. Yes. And tell me what tell me when you're doing that. OK. Yes. I'm do, you, looking at, do you think that he has bad breath? Um. He looks like when people are, when people have eyes that are quite close together and they they always look very very clean shaven. I assume they've got bad breath. Possibly, maybe it's yeah. He's got a slightly Neanderthal look to him, mm. sexy Neanderthal, but a Neanderthal nonetheless. So you yeah, imagine like, that they they wouldn't have brushed their teeth much, would they, caveman? Yeah, so it's like everything he's looking at, he doesn't fully comprehend. So he's just still looking at it, thinking, oh, I wonder if everyone else knows what's going on, but I don't. He's always got that look in his eyes. The Josh Hartnett, if you will. But yeah, he looks like he might have bad breath. Yeah, I, and it would probably be because he doesn't have a lot of wisdom in his eyes. Does he? he looks like the kind of person you'd forget to brush their teeth. Um, we were going we to cast you for that part there, uh, but unfortunately you don't have enough Norman. <laughs> uh, right, okay. I'm not going to bother watching that. Because I can't even remember the second one. Um, just watch the first one again. It's just clearly yeah. more fun. Yeah, and it's got Matthew McConaughey in it. So, okay, let's talk about a film called Six Degrees of Separation, which is on Freevee, the free oh, prime. Is that channel. the one with adverts? Yes. Although not many. Maybe that's because I have Prime as well. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, it seems to only have like maybe one or two ad breaks it's weird anyway six degrees of separation this was made in 1993 w- w- do algorithms work because i obviously don't watch tv shows does it work you know like when i'm on my phone uh, for yes. example on twitter and stuff because obviously you know it's the the, the the um algorithm is directed towards me it's like oh you're you're fat and stupid do you want to lose weight and women fancy you but when you're watching it on TV, is it just yeah. random adverts? Like, is it like tampon adverts and stuff? Um, what were the adverts? Yeah, I know. I think it's pretty random. They're more like TV adverts. Yeah, it's not going to be like if you like accidentally search for I don't know an air fryer or something, and then suddenly every advert is trying to sell you an air fryer. Um, oh right, yeah. It's yeah, not like it's, you're. It doesn't just the screen. Like at the moment it cut to the first advert in Six Degrees of Separation, it didn't just cut to black, and then it went. Brr, brr, and then hello you threw to uh 999 and then oh i've slipped and my head has gone up my ass 
You think that's never ha- that's never happened to me. Why? What's this algorithm? Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if anyone's um, ever turned up at the hospital like that. Are you, I would quite. If I was a doctor, I'd say, "How did you get here? Is this a joke?" Yeah, this can't be an accident. This looks this is premeditated. <laughs> I'm going to need to see some your Google searches. Um, so. Six Degrees of Separation, yes. So this is 1993. It's based on a stage play, which itself is partly based on a true story. And this features Donald Sutherland and Stockard Channing as wealthy New York art dealers. Stockard Channing, the one from Greece? Yeah. Of course. I can't remember the character's name. You know, the one. But yeah. Still got it in this movie. Yeah. So. um, It's being a boy's haircut. Um, so basically one night their world is crashed by Paul, who's played by Will Smith. He comes to their home uh, and says he's been mugged in Central Park and he says he knows their kids. And he turns out he's hugely educated and regales them with high society tales and uh, cooks for them. And he provides them with all this quotable wisdom he charms him basically. He also says he's Sidney Poitier's son, which helps uh, in terms of his status. Anyway, he stays and then he stays over there flat. And then the next morning, they find him in bed with a man and they kick him out. But that's not the last we'll hear of him. It turns out that he has been trying this same trick on other wealthy New York socialites uh, of basically charming his way into their home for a bed for the night. Uh, the plot thickens and he becomes the talk of the town and he, he comes in and out of their lives and causes quite a stir. Um, but this is a young man who's not stealing anything of great value and he's not even breaking the law, technically speaking, because they invite him into their homes. But he seems obsessed with tricking his way into their privileged lives, basically. And this was Will Smith's first star turn, I think. Do you know, uh, I was thinking, as I saw 93 and I thought, well, yeah. that must have been one of his first after... Well, it was um, pre-Bad Boys. I think it might have still been on Fresh Prince at this yeah, point. That was 90, that's 95 and this is 93, so that, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a really smart film and it's very sharp-witted. And in the end, it's actually quite thought-provoking and moving. It's, um, it's quite a pointed satire about liberal elites, the way that they are both like seduced and repulsed by this exotic outsider there's this underlying racism to it but also this patronizing way that like um stockard channing in particular wants to adopt this poor lad but only at arm's length so he kind of retains his status as an outsider he's just very intriguing to them there aren't any like laugh out loud jokes it's more of a just a very well observed script which it picks up really well on like this wealthy couple's like pomposity and the way that they boast about their status with their friends and complain about their horrible kids. And they seem so in control of everything, their lives and so sorted, but they seem utterly unable to fathom out this invader into their lives. And it sort of secretly excites them that this, disruptor has invaded their lives and is messing them about and bringing some kind of excitement and it bringing some lack of control into their lives it's sort of a character study and it's not very cinematic it's very talky but it has a really good cast and script and and it's almost certainly the most 
whip-smart and subversive film that Will Smith is ever going to make, really. Uh, and it's a real keeper from his back catalogue, which the kind of movie that he'd never make today. I mean, he couldn't, in a way, because this relies on his youth. But I don't know. It just seems it just seems subversive in a way that you'd never really see from him again in his dramatic roles. So I like this film. I think it's cool. It's very watchable. Very, it just feels like you're in safe hands sort of thing. So it's a very like, um, you know, like when you're watching like a, uh, like a David Mamet script or something like that. And it's like, Mm. um, or who's the guy, uh, Aaron Sorkin or something like that, you know, like, a really a good playwright type script um, with good characters. And you can tell that all the actors are really on board with it. So, yeah, it's a cool film. Six Degrees of Separation is definitely worth watching. It's a hell. I've got to say, it's a hell of a cast. I'm just looking at this. It so I'll just read out some. So you've got <gasps> Stockard Channing, Will Smith, Donald Sutherland, Ian McKellen, Mary Beth Hurt, Heather Gray and Bruce Davison, Richard Masua, Anthony Michael Hall, Donald Van Bargen, Eric Thal, Kelly Bishop, Anthony Rapp, Oz Perkins, Catherine Kellner, J.J. Abrams, Kit Carlisle and Cleo King. There's a lot of names there that, that that's an impressive cast. It is. Anthony Michael Hall, that's quite a nice little cameo. It's, it's almost like each actor gets like their kind of like at least one really cool monologue sort of thing. And actually, Will Smith gets one of the best ones of all. There's like a scene near the start where he's sort of like, he's charmed this like Donald Sutherland and his wife. And and he just makes this speech in the bedroom, which is just like has them completely entranced. And you realise afterwards that you were absolutely hanging on every single word he was saying. It's just really cool. It's just really well written. So I'd watch that. Is it where they're about to make love and they they sort of say well, what's that and they look up and he's standing above them and looking down at them and they say what are you doing in here paul and he says in west philadelphia because <laughs> that's the theme to yes to yeah. yeah yeah um i john might watch that because i've noticed with this the, the 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 cover the poster looks almost like a thriller and that's interesting with, with the um it's got an 80% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is all good. But also one of the comments on Wikipedia says that it betrays its theatrical roots. And I found that like 80s, 90s films with theatrical roots sometimes can really get me going because they seem to be much more focused. Yeah, like a, yeah, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross or something, where it's very, very focused on just yeah. characters. Cap- or Cap- even Cap- like Reservoir Dogs too. or something. I know it's not. Some of these aren't actual. It feels like, yeah, yeah, a couple of locations, a lot of good yep. actors. That's all you need. I'm not sure it does really betray its, um, its theatrical roots, but it doesn't need to. It's quality. Um, Myla, have you got? We, we've got plenty of time. I mean, I'm having to go till three or four in the morning. Have you? How many more films have you got? I have one more after this. Wow. Okay. Um, I have one question for you after this, if that's all right. Sure. But um, I, I just wanted to say this is a, this is a TMT. This is a two-minute trashing because you've covered this already. I watched the Candyman, not that one, the remake from 2021. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know why I think it was on Amazon Prime and it popped up, and it was one of those nights where it's like, let's choose a film. Oh, do you fancy that? Yes, click, boom, and I watched it, and it wasn't very good. Um, no. Jordan Peele does a screenplay. I, well, you've covered this before, um, so if people want to see like hear full coverage of it feel free to go back through the the uh, kk archives but what i found was the original was based in liverpool 
the original story basically where Clive Barker's from. Mm-hmm. And this I thought that the nineteen ninety two I think it is film was based in Liverpool as well, but no it's not. Chicago, isn't it? Chicago, yes. So with this, with the, the, I mean, everyone knows what your Candyman's all about. When I was watching this film, I was not on board throughout, and I thought maybe it's because it it would resonate more with me if I was a like a black American male, if you know what I mean. It felt mm. like it was it was going through that route, and I, and I was watching. And I thought, no, I don't, I can't see how it would. It just seems very. It feels really non-committal. Like yeah. It didn't feel like it was dealing with any specific things. It felt like it was struggling to connect the supernatural roots with the sort of earthy uh, class divide. And and I just yeah. thought, well, this I'm not I'm not seeing how this works together. I don't feel like like we we talked about before watching the um what was the um in was it in Enola Holmes? Yeah. So, and I and I kind of enjoyed it, and you didn't. And and I said so when I realised that I was not the target audience, I sort of settled with it. And I think you had yeah. problems throughout. But with this, I I very early on I thought right maybe I'm not the um, the target demographic for this. But then I just thought no, I still feel like it's not a good film. Yeah. Um, you might be making an excuse for it there because it isn't a particularly good film. It's especially not a particularly good horror film. I remember one of the things that annoyed me about it was that the kind of horror sequences were so art it's so over-engineered and artfully shot and stuff it just like it took all the horror out there's one bit where isn't there one bit where there's an attack which happens and it's all done in the like reflection in a shard of mirror or some crap like that and it's yeah like, yeah well you know i get it you know you don't want to admit that you're a horror film you want to you'd rather be a, a like an issues film i get it but at some point we do need to be entertained yeah there were two scenes that stick to mind that's good that you mentioned that you jog my memory then um there's one where he's explaining someone is explaining you know the where Candyman came from and and i still wasn't clear about motivations where he Mm. oh he was living in the walls of the apartment building he comes out i thought yeah but why does he why is he killing people again and then he just and then the scene sort of awkwardly ends and i thought right that wasn't really just a smash cut. I don't, I don't, that had no impact on me. I, I just feel like you hadn't finished the scene. Like, I don't, I th- yeah. feel like if this scene where he walks out of the wall with a hook on his hand and is approaching a child, whatever he does next, I will understand his motivations. It just cuts and then doesn't, exp- doesn't say what happened next. I thought, I don't really get that. Mm. And then, it, and then the second one was that sequence where it's like a lot of girls, they say Candyman or Mary, and he turns up and he just fucking kills them all instantly. He bursts out and just hacks them to bits. And you're looking at it in the reflection of like it's either a watch or like a yes, like man. a pocket watch sort of thing. And I and I thought not only am I like squinting at my screen to see what's happening, but uh, so what? Now he just kills everyone because that makes it much more clear. And yeah. um, and then of course every time this Candyman, whichever iteration of it appears. He seems to have different drives, none of which are explained by the narrative of the film. And and I, I just don't know, I don't think this is good. And it's really disappointing because I remember before this, this is 2021, but going back 10 years, there was a point where Clive Barker was going through his uh, his catalogue and he was releasing stuff like Midnight Meat Train, Fear, which is, is still one of the few films to actually make me gag when I watched it. Um, and, and I thought, oh, my God, this is like really powerful 
you know, um, meat and potato stuff where it's just gonna, he's going to release these 80, 90 minutes, boom, 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 from his short stories and movies. And then something like this comes out and it just seems like a lot of fluffy shit. And I thought, well, <laughs> I remember really enjoying a handful of, of when your when your films were cross media in like 10, 15 years ago. And now it's just just typical Hollywood forgettable fair. So it was really disappointing. Mm. I don't know how they messed up such a simple story as Candyman. I mean, it was very... Stark it's almost it's almost Kruger-esque, isn't it? You fall asleep, mm. you have a shit time. You you say Candyman in the mirror, and you're not gonna have a nice evening. And 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 I just think, well, surely yeah. this just strip it back, if anything. And yeah, yes. I, 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 like surely if if, I, if Clive Barker's the author is obviously talking about you know the class divide and all that sort of stuff, and it's like that's been covered in in your book that you wrote and a film that he was probably involved in. Yeah. In the 90s. And it, it was in, and it was kind of implicit as well, wasn't it? In those films, it wasn't it wasn't front and center. The, the problem with the Candyman remake is it feels like the issues are first, and then the horror is background. Mm. It should be the other way around. And and I gotta say as well that the um the whole the main premise of the fact that he gets stung by that bee, mm. the main protagonist, and then he's his hand is getting more and more affected, but he is a normal person. But like mm. for, for about the first, I would say, like eight, 80 minutes, he is just a normal person. And then he starts hearing voices and all this sort of stuff. But you, I just thought, just go to the doctor because you, <laughs> you've had this beast thing and it's just infected. Yeah, and it keeps bad. on showing him picking bits off and gnawing at it and scratching it. And I thought, you would you would just go to the doctor. Yeah, so, And that was a really, really stupid fixation on that wound in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I, it was just a lot of bollocks. And I, Don't I, bother. I, no, not at all. Go back and watch the original. Bernard Rose original. Right, okay. So we'll finish with The Pursuit of Happiness, which is on Netflix. What you said, this is my question, um, that to remind me, but you said that you were going to do, um, you, you were like, oh, I've watched a lot of Will Smith films. But, mm-hmm. but why? Why Will <laughs> Smith? Why these films? Because these are films I either have never seen before or I haven't seen in a long time. Um, and yeah, it came. It was purely because I wanted to watch Ali, and I knew I liked that, and I did like that, and and then it went from there, snowballed really. Um, is this yeah. the film? Is this the film? This rings a distant bell to one of our earliest episodes, yeah. where one of the Arkansas was Will Smith to someone, and you couldn't connect a drama, so you read lots of interviews with Will Smith until he mentioned it. The off chance, it might be. Yeah, is that this? Yeah, yeah I thought it, was, it yeah. might be. Yeah. Um, this was made in 2006 and it's called The Pursuit of Happiness, but that's quite an ironic title because this is actually a cavalcade of misery, this film. Uh, he plays a struggling single father who's trying to make it as a San Francisco stockbroker whilst flogging useless bone density scanners on the side. His wife, played by Tandy Newton, is a vindictive cow and they're about to get evicted. And basically, this is a film about the various travails of a dad and his young son, uh, who is Will Smith's actual son. And so they're effectively homeless and just trying to get through each day and survive the night if they can even find a shelter to stay in. And there's something absurd about the rhythm or the pattern of this film, the way it keeps like teasing you with some the promise of some kind of respite but you just know that he's he's going to cross the road and just be hit by a car or something it becomes almost comical like you just know that something's going to come along and just make everything even more miserable um and i suppose it goes back 
a bit to my comments about seven pounds in a way. It's like it's quite manipulative in its structure, especially when you cotton on to the fact that it is just it's entered this rhythm of like teasing you with the possibility of respite and then thrusting some other misery in, my, in your face. And you realize you're just waiting for the final release, the final kind of redemption. And it's pretty much like you were saying it before. It's the definition really of misery porn. Um, and there is the kind of only that dismal comfort of waiting for the Hollywood ending to arrive really. But when you consider the situation he's in, right, effectively risking everything to seek limitless wealth in the business world rather than say i don't know just getting a regular job it could have ended up quite differently i mean he takes massive risk considering his situation um you know just persevering wanting to be a stockbroker and yeah i mean he perseveres but the perseverance is all the film cares about there's no suggestion that he's like competent say he just it, all it focuses on the fact that he just keeps blindly moving forward and occasionally gets lucky. And this is just a bullshit Hollywood message really underneath. I mean, how about, yeah, perseverance is great, but how about competence as well? Showing that he's actually good at his job or something. I don't know, but it goes back to that belief thing again, I suppose, like actual competence would require some sort of evidence to be shown, but belief only needs itself. And what, a load of baloney that message is and it, he, it's just sort of cynical goes on and this, dishonest it goes on the same journey really as um really? harrison ford in blade runner there's no yeah. competence not there is no good competence. at his job <laughs> no. no he just does lux his way through situations as well but yeah what a cynical and dishonest message to be shitting in the faces of the audience so that is pursuit of happiness and it, uh, it, i noticed there's a there's a um an uncredited cameo by the actual chris gardner did that yeah. burn you as much as the actual credit by the bloke who was in um, Wolf of Wall Street? Oh, yeah, the Wolf of Wall Street one is just, that was bizarre. It's like a weird bit of just sycophantic, like, mm-hmm. fan service at the end. Did, I, didn't yeah. watch the, I didn't watch the Wolf of Wall Street for about eight yeah. years until, until I covered it on the podcast, probably last year or the year before. Yeah. And I remember, I actually remember conversations in work where people were sort of fetishizing that man's lifestyle yeah i know completely not understanding that no it's, it's not good it's not it's good not to treat to everyone like shit and like objects and for you to be completely solipsistic in your outlook that's not good by the way but no. again it never seems quite like worked out whether i out. blame scorsese for that or not because I, I don't think scorsese wants him to be a sympathetic figure or a figure that you actually walk is seductive in any way and I didn't find it seductive in any way. I think, I think, no, I think if, if someone came up to me and said, oh, would you like to go to a job where you get loads and loads of money and all the, everyone is treated like shit and then women and, and dwarves will suck you off, but then you also get to vomit on them as all you and your friends laugh at them as you give them like minimum wage. I think, no, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like something I'd want to do on a day-to-day basis, to be honest. <laughs> uh, like, and, and, and I made that decision without, you know, <laughs> Martin Scorsese's directorial sort of style coming into it. it yeah. yeah, I yeah, it's just, it's just disappointing, really. So that's it. That's everything. That's every that's film Will Smith ever made. I, are you um are you, are you delving further into Mr. Smith's oeuvre no, or is that no <laughs> I'm done uh 
I'm I what I am doing is I have recently finished the Middle Earth uh, <laughs> sextuplet. Is that what they call it? Yeah. So, but that won't be next time. I've got I've still got a backlog to to get through. Um, and, and for the um, for the listeners out there who don't fully understand um, anything like uh, Tolkien's sort of back catalogue, Middle Earth, you, you're talking about um, Birmingham. Yeah. Wolverhampton. Wolverhampton. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of area. Brompton. <laughs> um, I know someone from Sweden. It's so funny when you meet someone and they say, you know, you say, oh, where are you from? And they say, oh, like Norwich. Oh, what's it like? Oh, shittle. <laughs> I, I, I love the word shittle when people use it to describe their hometowns. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, what's, it, what's it like out there in Bolton? Oh, it's a shittle, mate. And you're, oh, okay. Um, great. Well, I won't book two weeks there and hold with my family then. Um, this is the part of the podcast where we move into the Arkenstar. So we've got the Turbo Ultra Mega Arkenstar of going through the Fraser cast of Kelsey Grammer through David Hypeus to John Mahoney or John Mahoney to Kelsey Grammer, David Hypeus, whichever order you yeah, want to do it in. Um, so I'm going to move to, before we go to the Arkenstar, oh, sorry, uh, our guest review of the is now i fell victim to this myself is it called super mario brothers or super mario brothers movie the super mario brothers movie right so this is uh this is richard and he's covering the super mario brothers movie for us hi brit it's rich i've just got back from the imax in leicester square and i watched the super mario brothers movie um, I took some notes, so this is what I've got to say about about 90 minutes, and it feels like about five minutes. Loosest storyline ever, but at the end of the day, just walk in there, switch off your brain, strap yourself in, enjoy Bowser, because he absolutely rocks, and also the 101 sort of Nintendo Easter eggs that are scattered throughout the film. And basically, if you love Super Mario games, then you're going to love this film. So uh, that's my mini review. Speak to you soon, mate. Bye. Also, P.S. Wait right to the end for a little uh, little cameo from someone we all know and love. Right to the end, though. There's two uh, two little uh, surprises. One straight after the uh, initial credits and then one after the long credits. Over and out. I'm gonna say I, I love. Um, I've known Rich for a long time, and I love his accent. I I, I would lo- I, I'd love for him. It's so wonderfully English. I'd love for him to do like a, uh, like a guided meditation or something. I don't know. I just find his. I find his voice genuinely wonderful. I always have. Um, and, and yeah. So thank you, Rich. And and then moving on from that, we've come to the Arkansas now. I don't know if you can remember this, Rupert. What was the last Arkansas? It was Jamie Lee Curtis to Chris Pine. Yes. I hope it was because that's what I've done. One one of our regulars um, is uh, Utah Smith, and he 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 sent me like a two stepper, and it was this really long, eloquent two stepper, and then I I thought nothing of it, and then I was here with my brother one day uh, in the flat, and my um, he said, oh, what, what did Utah get? And they read it out, and he said, he said that's that's Chris Pine to Sigourney Weaver. And I was like, I said, is it? And he went, yeah, yeah, and. Uh, 
because he mentions like the ice storm or something with Kevin Klein, and and I thought, oh, I thought it was. And he said, no, it, it's it's Jamie Lee Curtis, not Sigourney Weaver, and it really tickled me because I was like, oh, I thought you would have won that, but then, see, and, and I didn't, and, and my brother was like, but you, it's your podcast, <laughs> you should know. So yeah, it's Jamie Lee Curtis to Chris Pine, and um, I'm just there's a here we go. I have to get, I'll get Utah's up first because it yours sends a bloody voicemail which is slightly more awkward than a um the text versions other people send in so this is utah smith and this is the arkansas this week which is jamie lee curtis to chris pine i'm watching jack ryan shadow recruit with sexy pine kenneth branner's in it boom so i got chris pine to kenneth branner in jack ryan Kenneth Branagh was in, uh, what was it called, Wild Wild West with Kevin Klein, who was in Fish Called Wanda slash and Fierce Creatures with Jamie Lee Curtis. Getting there, getting better. Can see if I can get a shorter one. Oh, pretty good. Spoiler alert, he, he, didn't, he didn't get a shorter one. Yeah. <laughs> so how many, yeah, so, and also I, I thought when he mentioned Wild Wild West, then I thought he was going to mention... Um, Will Smith, which would have tied in nicely with this episode. Um, I remember really liking World World West when it came out yeah. in like the early 2000s. I, I should watch it again, really. Mm, uh, I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. Um, it's... Uh, I'm not sure it's... Isn't, I'm not sure it's one for reconsideration as a cult classic, I must say. Oh, Okay. One of those are you, um, and the, and the other ones we, we the other ones we got so that was Utah. How many steps was that, by the way? So it was three set three steps. Okay, so we've got here uh, Max Chris Pine is in Star Trek with Zoe Saldana, who paints herself green and hangs around with Chris Evans in a bunch of Marvel shit, and he's in Knives Out with Jamie Lee Curtis. That's another oh, three that's step. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Mike says Jamie Lee Curtis is in Knives Out with. Uh, Don Johnson, who was in Tin Cup with Kevin Costner, who was <laughs> Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit with Chris Pine. I've got yes. to say, I I play golf with my dad and my brother, and Tin Cup is the best golf film. Okay. I know I know you 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 Will Smith fans like you thinking about that one with Jack Lemmon. What was it? The um the Legend of Shagger Vance. But you need to really pay attention to. Have you ever seen Tin Cup? I have. It's Ron Shelton one. He did White Men Can't Jump as well. Yeah. Which I, was I, one of Stanley Kubrick's favourite films, weirdly. Good. Of course, oh, making of, a TV series out of it. Thank God. It's exactly uh, what the world needed. Speaking of um, of just, uh, Stanley Kubrick, I've got a DVD from a mutual friend, Mal, to hand over to you on Sunday. Okay. Um, and then uh, Laszlo Bucket said, yo, we should get Laszlo back on, really. Someone needs yeah. to die so we can talk about something. <laughs> Yo, JLC, that's Jamie Lee Curtis, was in Knives Out with Daniel Craig, who was in Knives Out 2 with Hugh Grant, who was in Dungeons & Dragons, not that one, with Chris Pine. That I'm willing is to remarkable. Bet, I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one who got this answer, so here's another one to stick in your pipe. Jamie Lee Curtis was in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once with Michelle Yeoh. Who's in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 with Zoe Saldana, who was in Star Trek with Old Piney Boy. So, the, uh, two, yeah, three that, steppers. Yeah, that, was, that first one was exactly what I heard. 
Obviously, Knives Out with Daniel Craig, who's in Glass Onion with Hugh Grant, who's in Dungeons & Dragons with Christopher Pine. So, Rupert, we've come to that part of the... um, Well, before we move on to the Arkansas, actually, what was was your film of the week? The film of the week, I think, has got to be Six Degrees of Separation. Because it's an underseen Will Smith classic. That's fair enough. Yeah, it, it, it's one of the few films this week that you you made me want to watch. Um, I I'm looking at my list now, and um, I'm not going to ping choose Pink Fong and Baby Shark bizarrely. Uh, the no, Mister X and Warhead, Warhead Warheads on the list. Okay, yeah, Mister X and Warhead, I'll push to one side because I've, I've reviewed them before. But um, Magic Mike's Last Dance was. It took me on a, an emotional roller coaster of disappointment. Candyman was just disappointing. Deep House was interesting, but ultimately a, a noble failure. It's got to be Asterix Mansion of the Gods because I genuinely, I genuinely enjoyed that. And I, and I like if and that's if the that, one that you persuaded me to watch. So it's impressive. Yeah. Oh, which is quite nice. Yeah. There's. Uh, I, I just. Yeah. I, I, I'm even talking about it now. I think oh, I could check that on again tonight actually because it's. Uh, and it'd be interesting to know which parts you find funny, but the Roman. There's something funny about people having really serious conversations in extremely like echoey, reverb-laden rooms, which is yeah. uh, why I quite like 80s drum sounds. Um, so, yep, that's that. What is the Arkansas for the next well, episode, Rupert? I think it's got to be Stockard Channing 2. Up to you. Okay, so you've done the woman, I'll do the dude. <laughs> Oh, how about this? Stockard Channing to Channing Tatum. Oh, that is beautiful. Oh, it's my meant God. To be. I'm literally going to type it. Otherwise, I'm going to forget. I'm, I'm literally going to type that into, into what's it called? Chat CBT. Just to get your answer straight Dear. away. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I wonder if you could tell it to do that, I would have thought. Have you got it up? Can you do it? Um... And then we'll just oh. dis- disallow this link. Have you got ChatGPT up? Um, no, I don't have the... Because uh, I know it's just basically a history of you typing in why doesn't my wife fancy me over and over. <laughs> yeah, in different, it, Using different Hoping that I'll get a different answer. it'll come up with a different time. answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I will. That could be interesting, though, to what I might do. is I'll come up with my own, but also... I'll get like an AI answer and see how well that does. I would presume it would come up with a perfect answer, to be honest.